Right, so I am here, um, back with uh, the second episode in a three-part series, which will have one or more than three parts. I was going to say it's going to have more than three parts. Multiple bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> we should keep calling it the three-part series, even though it might be seven, <laughs> eight parts. <laughs> the um, the series that will just never end because really. I just started this podcast because why I want to talk to Bird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. There you go. I mean, revolutions too. If we just made this about revolutions, we just have to wait for new ones. I mean, <laughs> exactly. They seem to happen yeah. all the time. Well, I'm uh, I'm trying to woo Paz and uh, Matt from the status quo on to uh, come talk about how we are justified in starting the next American revolution. Uh, <laughs> we. I like how you say we. Like, are you coming over here to help? I really appreciate it. I'll. Uh, I'll be a spiritual support. Oh, good. All right, thanks. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, today we are covering the uh, the French Revolution. Um, and as we were discussing before the recording, as you, the listener, the French Revolution, fucking, like, holy shit. Yeah, uh, complete mass, completely disorganized. Everyone dies. Uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, are killed. Um, and the French are just awful. I'll, uh, yeah, um, it's... Before, uh, uh, it's a weird saga that doesn't really teach you any good lessons. Oh, it no, just kind of not. cycles right back to the original problem. Yes. I'll, um, uh, so, I mean, Bird, uh, being the historically informed one of us, will do most of the talking here, I think. And I'll interject here and there. Uh, and I'll pick up a little bit earlier than him. Oh, my but God. I just looked through my notes. I have eight pages of notes. Why do I have eight pages <laughs> of <laughs> notes? <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, uh, before we really get into the timeline of events, um, there are two things I want to get into. First, the four most important years of the whole story. And secondly, uh, what in my eyes are like the three-ish main causes. And then from there, uh, I'll hand over the reins to you. Okay. Um, so uh, I don't have this in my notes, but I have this in this DM I sent you uh, on Wednesday. Um, basically, the French Revolution can be summarized in four years. Um, mm-hmm. 1763, uh, the French lose the Seven Years' War, mostly with the English, um, and they run out of money. 1793, uh, the French beheaded the king, and they continue mm. to be out of money. Um, 1804, Napoleon is crowned emperor. Uh, the French continue to still be out of money. Uh, and 1820, Napoleon dies on St. Helena, um, and uh, the French still managed to be out of money. Yeah, that is the whole timeline of revolutionary France. Pretty I would much. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but we don't cover that much, just so the listeners know. Not yet, yeah, at least. No, I mean, we could yet. definitely get into that. We we cover the first two. Like, I mean, we cover yeah, between roughly. your first two because I'll actually give you mine. I think there's three significant years personally, mm-hmm. and I would say that um, they they were 1788. 
which is uh, the year that the three estates system is created, the estates general is created, which is right. the birth of the National Assembly, I would say. Yes. Um, 1789, the year after that, which a whole bunch of stuff happens. Oh, yeah. That's, that's um, uh, just like by the minute almost. Yeah, it's crazy. And 1792, which is the year the war starts with Austria, which yeah. is kind of where Napoleon gets his excuse that he's a liberating army from. That's his invasion of the Netherlands, basically, is kind yep. of his first foray into being a liberator. So I'd say those were probably the three most important years that I found, which is where I'm probably mostly going to be talking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's interesting because I think we have somewhat different notes. So that's, that's absolutely fantastic, actually. It is, because, um, yeah, anything, you, yeah, anything we'll, uh, if I jump to a date, you stop me and go, wait, between those years, this happens. Yes, yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think uh, a, a few of the main reasons I see um, that caused the French Revolution are, uh, well, I think number one would probably be poverty and starvation. Yeah. Because uh, they'd had multiple bad harvests uh, mm-hmm. before the revolution. And I mean, the French people, like 95% of them were just poor and starving. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then there's taxation. So they had a literally regressive tax system. Um, and the church and the nobility all had their own taxes. And I mean, the, the French people were taxed out of their ass. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, um, and this is may, maybe not really the cause, but one of the things that really set it off, uh, the skewed power between the estates. Um, yes, yes, which yeah. Which has to do with Enlightenment ideas. Um, I think it's best uh, put together in 1782 when Louis-Sebastien Mercier writes, uh, the word court no longer inspires awe amongst us as in the time of Louis XIV. Um, reigning opinions are no longer received from the court. It no longer decides on uh, reputations of any sort. The court's judgments are countermanded. One says openly that it understands nothing, it has no ideas on the subject, and could have none. <laughs> yeah, and that sets the stage pretty much. Yeah. Actually, that that and that quote, actually, of yours, when did he say that quote, you said? Uh, 82. 84? 82? Yeah. So that's before I begin, actually. So so he's already saying that um, before any of my notes begin. Oh, yeah. Which is, so then just that to give you perspective of how long this thing has been in the in the making. If it starts in 1782, somebody's already saying that. Oh, yeah. Um, so you started in 84, and I have a bit before that. So I'll get into it right now. Um, so as I said before, 63 is the first year that I think is quite relevant. Um, because France loses the Seven Years' War um, with, well, mostly the English, but considering the way Europe is around this time, uh, there's a bunch of other European nations involved in this. Um, but due to the way the English and the French are, they are basically uh, constantly at war with each other. Um, so in 74, uh, Louis XVI takes the throne um, and France is teetering around the edge of bankruptcy. Very similar to uh, the Spanish in our previous episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I just add to this? Because I do have a note that technically goes back to where you're talking about, which is yeah. in the 18th century... Um, France fights four wars, four major wars that Jesus. lead to that, yeah. that cost that price. Yeah. So just like you said with the Spanish, which I distinctly recall, they were involved in a bunch of different expensive yep. wars. Yeah. It's the same situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Turned out uh, fighting war is expensive. Very expensive. And it leads to uh, the chance of rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Fuck. <laughs> um, so um, around this time, uh, several issues start coming up. 
Um, the French apparently had an absolutely awful transportation system. Um, mm. I don't know exactly how this works because I would think you just put a, uh, a cart behind the horse and there you have your transportation system. <laughs> right. So what the fuck? Um, right. Yeah, this is before trains. So yes, I don't really exactly. Know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not French. So, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I could see the French putting uh, the cart bef- before the horse, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, there had been several bad harvests. Uh, so the population was starving. Guess who wasn't starving? The uh, king and Louis. his nobles. Yeah. Um, and uh, Louis XVI is kind of a bitch. Um, oh my God, he's horrible. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a like a weak-willed bitch um, because he has to make several great reforms, but he keeps backing down to them or from them, um, largely because the nobles and the church don't want uh, don't want any of it. Any of it. Um, also. Uh, this was around the time of the invention of the press. So a lot of pamphlets uh, with, um, well, I wouldn't quite say revolutionary, although th- later on they will be, ideas are spread. Um, and the court tries to suppress these. Um, so then the next year is 76. Um, the French minister of finances, Turgot, is fired for failing to enact reforms. Uh, a new man is hired, Jacques Necker, a Switzer or a Swiss man. Um, yes. Yep. But he can't officially become a minister because he's Protestant. I'm actually glad you're mentioning this because he plays a big role later in my notes. Yes. And I didn't go into his history. Yes. Um, so this Necker uh, turns out to be a fucking moron um, because uh, he can't find a way to create more tax revenue in a literal regressive tax system with uh, so many exemptions for the nobility and the clergy that they basically don't pay taxes at all. Um, he further suggests that um, borrowing money should do the trick. Uh, just, you know, borrow more money to pay all your debts. Also, he underestimates the budget deficit by about 36 million livres. Um, and on top of all that, he has the goal uh, to propose restricting the power of the provincial parliaments. Um, so, well, this is not uh, received well by the king. Of, um, at which point, Necker has the fucking goal to argue that he should just be made minister. I mean, I, I fucking love this guy. Uh, no, the guy's awesome. The guy's an incredible... <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, uh, he actually does something pretty incredible. To, I'll get into it later. He does yeah. some pretty interesting things. But yeah, he does. He secures himself his position of managing the finances of the country, yeah. which really he should have been able to do all along. But oh, yeah. I think this is, this is before there was a French central bank. Oh, that could be, yeah. Yeah, so the reason why he has to restrict the provincial parliaments is because, I mean, the central bank otherwise would be covering the minting of currencies and the legislating of interest rates and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, and they don't have anything like that. You know, I re- actually, I think France's money is, is Louis's money. I think it's the same at this time. That might be right. Yeah. Because I think it was an absolute monarchy. I, it is, or it was. Yeah, right. So, so basically all of France's revenue is in Louis's pocket. Just 100% of it, because that's how that works. Yeah, that's interesting. So basically, yeah. he gives Necker a lot of power, or Necker, I think is how the French say it. Yeah. Well, Necker. Necker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, but I think he, basically, he gives him a lot of power. He gives oh, yeah. Louis a lot of power. Louis like, here, gives have him my power. Wolf, you know? And, and, and yeah, manage, be my personal accountant. Yeah. And um, I will say it now, even though it is important to say it later, uh, Necker is the first politician in history that I was able to find, who is able to 
in a monarchic system of government make the budget public. So oh. before him, he the budget was secret, and okay. it was the it was the it was the personal um, concern of the monarch or the sovereign. Oh, that's he's the first person that makes it a public matter, like so that you can actually see the yeah. public accounting yeah, yeah. of the spending. Holy so. Shit. Yeah, yeah. It is a pretty revolutionary thing that he does. Yeah, and it, he must have really been liked by Louis to be able to persuade him to do all of these things. Yeah, but um, I mean, I have some news for you here um, because basically uh, he's fired. Yes, he, yes. But later he gets fired. Yeah. I think so, Louis eventually goes, wait a minute, you've been robbing me of my, my power all this time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I imagine a conversation between the king and between Necker um, going something like the the king saying, "Dude, this proposal is is absolute shit. This uh, does nothing to increase tax revenue, and it puts us in more debt." Debt. Um, so Nickers, yeah, fucking whatever. Make me minister. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it is true though. Yeah, it's true. At which point the king is like, "Fuck you. You're fired." <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm not entirely sure of the year on this. Maybe you could tell me. But a new guy is hired. Um, Charles, Charles Alexandre de Calonne, or something uh, along those A lines. German. Yeah. Um, and um, well, at first he spends liberally. Um, by the way, 1789. Remember ah, one of those years I said. So he's fired in 1789 on July 11th. Ah, okay. Yeah. So this uh-huh. is way later. All right. And mm-hmm. I'll skip over this for now. Um, anyway, um, actually, so around 1789, this new guy is hired and he proposes. Uh, a bunch of taxes that also target the nobility and the clergy. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, this proposal gets shot down by the Council of Nobles because they won't have any of it. Yeah, uh, yeah right. Fucking imagine pay, uh, paying taxes if you're extremely rich, right? Yeah, right. Um, so this is actually what leads to the king calling for the assembly of the state general. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we go back in time a little bit again uh, to, to 1777. Um, the... Uh, Anglos surrender at the Battle of Saratoga uh, in the Americas. And um, the French court decides to send 10,000 troops and a few million dollars towards the Americas. Yes, by the way, remember I said those four wars that they participated in? That's one of them. And Ah, actually, that was their most expensive. Out of all the wars, their support for the United States was the most expensive war that they had ever fought. Yep. Insane to think about that, <laughs> that they basically paid for our revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Might be the, the one useful thing the French ever did. Well, thank you, French. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, because the French tax system is just absolutely retarded, um, they couldn't deal with this. Mm. Um, so this caused a major financial crisis. Um, yes, and, and I then, have, that's where I begin. Yeah. Not, not to stop you, but that is where I begin. Yeah. Uh, so... I'll go forward a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'll leave it to you for at least a bit. Um, the year 1787. Um, so the king calls together the Estates General, and mm-hmm. the Estates General is made up out of the three estates. Um, so there's the first estate uh, representing about 100,000 Catholic church, clergy. Because mm-hmm. um, remember, Louis Catholic, by the yep. way. Important to remember, most of the nobility um, in Western and Southern even central uh, uh, Europe at the time is all Catholic. Oh, yeah. all Catholic. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the, the Catholic Church is still very powerful at this time. Yes, not in um, England where they, they ousted all of them, but pretty much yeah. everywhere on mainland Europe. Yeah, not in the Dutch Republic either anymore. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. At this time, not, not in the Dutch Republic either. Yep. Um, so uh, the church levies its own taxes um, and they own about 10% of the land in France. Um, so then there's the second estate um, existing out of about 400,000 nobles. Uh, owning about 25% of the land, who also levy their own uh, rent in taxes. Um, and then there's the third estate, uh, representing about the, the other 95% of the population. Um, oh, it's worse than that, actually. In my numbers that I found, it's 98. Oh, Jesus. Even higher, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, especially at this time, somewhat logically, I guess, uh, not anyone can represent the third estate. Um, mm these are men who are um, French citizens, either by origin or naturalized, that are over 25 and pay uh, a certain amount of taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's another weird thing going on here. Um, members of the second estate can also be elected into the third estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, priest nobility, yep, yeah. Yeah, um, no, 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 I mean nobles. So nobles can be part of the third estate. Oh, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think you could serve at both uh, at the same time, but like you could be noble and be elected to the third estate. Hmm. Um, let's see. Um, so basically, uh, each estate is given uh, equal voting rights. Um, and you have to imagine at these estates, uh, there was about 300 of the uh, first and second estates each, hmm. um, and then about 600 uh, of the third estates. Um, so, um, this is kind of where the fuckery starts, um, mm-hmm. because the third estate, uh, wants to have, uh, two votes because they're with double the amount in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, they even want one vote for one man. Um, so an actual per capita vote to some extent. Um, well, um, I mean, it makes sense why they would want this because the clergy and the nobility basically have the same. Uh, the, the same wants or the same uh, right well well it's interesting because it in it you know if the clergy and the nobility get one vote really if it was representative the the um the commons the third estate would be getting 98 votes if it was a 100 vote total that's that that between 98 yeah. and 95 if we said that would yeah. be an accurate way of that doing it that would be it. much more We're accurate yeah that. yeah <laughs> um well i mean clergy's nobility king no one wants part of this uh, and then some fuckery goes on with that, some assembling. At some point, the third estate uh, just kind of declare themselves the National Assembly, mm-hmm. um, and they tell the other two estates and the king, go fuck yourself, uh, we are taking care of this now. We're the boss. Um, so after some more fuckery, uh, the third estate is kicked out of the building, uh, and they move to a tennis court, mm-hmm. where they swear yep. the tennis court oath, swearing to not disband, until they had settled on a constitution. Yep. And this is where I leave it to you. Okay. That's about, yeah, that's about a page in. So yes, um, uh, the body of the estate general is created and it convenes in Versailles. That's important to remember is that Ah, uh, in the meeting hall of Versailles is where they um, convene. Another important thing to mention besides the representative vote is um, firstly, the, system of rituals that occur inside of the building, uh, ah, the yeah, procession, the movement, the organization of the meeting hall, 
Uh, first of all, clergy took precedence in the procession, so they went first. Nobility were led by the king, who went second. And uh, at the back, uh, in the final uh, part of the procession, were the commons, or the third estate. Yep. Um, so another interesting thing is that the, the clergy took the seat to the right of the king, at the mm-hmm. king's right hand, which is a significant, symbolically significant uh, gesture. Yes. Uh, at this time, the clergy seated on the left. The center of the hall was like where the voting booth was, where the table was. And then towards the back were all 600 of the common people. So they were all yeah. in the back. Yeah. So um, the king is basically like sitting on a big podium. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. So to the right, the clergy, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the clergy so are to, to left, the right. Yeah. To the left mobility. And king is basically looking straight at uh, the third estate. Mm-hmm. The yep. Yeah, yeah. 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 Pretty much. Um as you said, within a, this was a, took a few days only, yep. uh, and within a few days, the commons basically they disregard the assembly and they um, name themselves the national assembly, like you said, and they uh, establish themselves as the sole uh, authors of the constitution that they that they then vow to uh, create. They do not allow nobility to join, from what I understand. The, mm-hmm. They don't allow the nobility at first to join the National Assembly, but they do allow the clergy to join. And I think it is during these this period of events, I think half of the clergy end up siphoning into the National Assembly. Yeah, yeah, um, I uh, read something to that extent as well. Yeah, uh, so basically Louis is looking at this and realizing that he's starting to lose control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's pressed by Marie Antoinette to use the military uh, to shut down the, the assembly, but he, he, um, he doesn't want to do it. He, like you said, closes the meeting hall, he locks it and he doesn't really explain why he locks it. Uh, presumably it was because he, he had planned on giving a speech, uh, and he didn't want the hall being used, uh, for convening of this national assembly because it's his building, you know, Yeah. Uh, he owns it. So they, like you said, they, they go over to a, a tennis court and they sign the tennis court oath, which yes. is, I would say, this is um, kind of the first instance of of a of the of a new government forming. Is it's like a pre-constitutional government. It's a vow to create yeah. a constitution. So basically, I would say 1789 is when you have kind of the September 1789 is when you really have the sort of the birth of the first idea of the republic. Yes. Um, and um, would you say that this is a good point to officially start the revolution? No, I wouldn't say so yet. Not the violent revolution. I'd say the revolution was going on already, but not the violent portion of the revolution. I guess the tennis court oath, no, it's not a revolution yet. Yeah, it's a constitutional revolution. It's not a country's revolution. It is a constitutional revolution, but it's not the French revolution yet. Um, yeah, no, it's not the actual revolt. Yeah, it's not. It's not the subject of this conversation just yet. I no. think I will. I'll try and remember when I think that happens. And I, uh, I think I have a, a a moment and a date for that. Okay, when I get uh, near we'll that, point it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, King, so Louis uh, eventually gives in to pressure. Yes. Oh, here's what it was: the National Assembly. They were the nobility were not allowed to join the National Assembly because Louis prevented them from doing it. Uh huh. After they occupy the tennis court um, and they swear their oath, which, by the way, in swearing their oath, they swear that they wouldn't abandon their commitment to the monarchy's um, position in government. So when they swear the original oath, they swear to uphold the monarchy. They oh, yeah. just want a constitution. Yeah. So this Louis, is, um, Lu- this is, well, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I was going to say this is an interesting trend uh, comparing to the Dutch revolt. 
where you see something similar. Um, That's right. So they they like they work on a constitution, they declare independence, but they try, uh, and you'll see this later on in the story as well. They really try everything to still uphold the monarchy. Yes, yes. Most people wanted the monarchy as the executive kind of the executive branch. Like they were yeah. fine with that. I mean, the military was already, and you'll see, the military was already at the time mostly loyal to the king anyway. Mm-hmm. So they weren't. They didn't really want to get rid of him anyway. So Louis because of the fact that they promised to uphold his position and also because, I mean, at this point out of the, I don't know, 800, 900, a thousand people who were convened, seven or 800 of them were at that tennis court, you know, like it was a huge event. Um, And by this time, Louis realizes uh, that he has to give into the pressure and he allows the nobility to start joining the national assembly and contributing to drafting a constitution because they were already drafting it. And so he basically says, look, you're drafting it already. So fine, I might as well get what representation I can. Exactly. So by June of 89, 1789, which is just a few weeks after the start of this Estates General thing, the revolution is pretty much wrapping up. They've drafted their constitution. It's all good. But something ends up happening. In in July, uh, not long after, I think it's like we're talking about June 28th, 29th. So in early July... Rumors I, uh, were. I have heard that uh, the king approves the constitution on the twenty third of June. On the twenty third of June. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Of June, the twenty third of June of eighty nine. Yeah. So in July, it's it rumors start circulating around Paris uh, that Louis was planning on turning back his promises and his signature, mm-hmm. and he was planning on crushing uh, the National Assembly. And there were no. There was no proof of this, but there were rumors that troops were being moved into the regions around Versailles. Yes. Uh, there were also uh, rumors that the starving that was happening in Paris that you mentioned, that it was an intentional starving in order, uh-huh. to, prevent, uh, in order to prevent a rebellion um, in response to the grain prices, which were going really high. Right. I have... Um, oh, no, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, it's so... With all of those rumors circulating, it becomes clear to the average Parisian person that the royal coup was about to begin. Yeah. Uh, and, and Necker, like you said, mm-hmm. who was fired on July 11th, yes. uh, was fired from his finance position, and the finance ministry was completely reconstructed. Uh, mm-hmm. Necker, who was responsible for the, uh, publicizing the budget of the country, yes, exactly. uh, he was fired. And this is the moment, I think, when you can say the actual revolution begins. Um, uh, Necker's firing. I'll tell you why. Okay. Because after his firing, rumors start circulating around. The, so basically, his firing confirms that Louis is doing something. Yeah. Louis is restructuring the finance ministry, which is public for mm-hmm. some reason. And the public begins to be warned by people in government, whether it be National Assembly members, but the public of Paris is warned to start arming themselves with weapons. So yeah, yeah, I have that a, 10, you have, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I have a few notes about this as well. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is also around the 11th. Um, so uh, mercenaries arrive in Paris um, and this causes the uh, National Assembly, which by this time I believe had moved from the tennis court already to a different location some yeah, church, yes. I believe, um, they go in non-stop session to prevent another eviction. Um, so that's one. Uh, there's already rioting and unrest going on in the streets of Paris. Yes. And 
uh, the rioters have the support of uh, essentially the French National Guard. Yes, yes, which we'll get to. They become very important later yes. when the, the rioters become a part of the government. It, it'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Do you, um, uh, what's the next date on your, uh, on your notes? Uh, I go to October, but I have to talk about the Bastille. Yes, yeah, okay. that's the and, very important one. Yeah, I don't have much to say about the actual storming of the Bastille, but it is an important event. I uh, have, if, you, uh, if you know about what actually happens in the Bastille, you could definitely yeah. talk about that. So I would, before you do that, I oh, would, sure. s- let me do, okay. So I'll just do these two lines and then you can talk about the Bastille. Go right ahead. So the, the after Necker's fired uh, and they're warned to arm themselves, uh, mm-hmm. Tens of thousands of people begin marching on the city's garrisons at Les Invalides, which is where ah, yeah. uh, the veterans are. Uh, in Les Invalides, the veterans' hospital is there, as well as the veterans' garrison. Um, yeah. And the Bastille, uh, which is, I think it's just a military uh, fort. I think it's just a fort. Um, and they yeah. ransack that building, and they steal the guns from both of these facilities. Uh, and it helped to kind of preserve the revolution. Here's my second part, and then you can talk about the Bastille. In the case of the American Revolution, uh, the British royalty and the government uh, left the whole continent once the war was over. But in the case of the first constitutional French Revolution, all of the key players within the royalty remain and continue to have influence. And uh, it becomes understood that the success of the French Revolution depends on the nobility's acceptance of their new role and the cycle of rumor and reaction like hearing that Louis is planning to take over Paris and then reacting by taking weapons from uh, the, the fort uh, had contributed to the nobility, the mistrust of the nobility so much that by this point it was completely broken down and people started realizing that maybe the nobility don't have a place in the government anymore because of the fact that people have no trust in them. So you yeah. could talk specifically about the storming of the Bastille if you want. Yeah. Um, a quick note is that you'll find mm-hmm. that rumors become a very important part of the French Revolution. Yes, yes, they do. And, and it's interesting because I'm, we weren't there, so I don't know how substantiated these rumors actually were. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, fun fact, on uh, July the 14th, 14 juillet, uh, the French actually celebrate their Independence Day. Um, oh, interesting. And why, yes. why do they do that? Well, because that's the day of the, the storming Bastille. of the Bastille. Okay, yeah, I would say... Um, yeah, that's perfect. That's the right time. The French can decide that. They're right. <laughs> that basically, that is the first, in, in, in the same way that the beginning of the American Revolution is, um, and see, I should know the actual name of the event. Let me get the name of it. In the, it's like the same way how in the beginning of the uh, American Revolution starts with a battle as well, like a storming of the fort. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, it, it basically begins at Concord. Uh, so Lexington and Concord, they lay, lay siege to Boston. It's the first battle is, is like this... Um, confiscation of military ordinance but in reverse so uh-huh. for the so for the french um their revolution is the storming of the bastille which yes. is the moment that the citizenry get the weaponry and basically in achieving the weaponry they basically say to the government we're in control now yep and for america we already had guns so the the Battle of Lexington and Concord was the result of the British military being ordered to seize the weaponry <laughs> from Concord. Yeah. So it's actually, it's similar. It's kind of like um, yeah. the reverse is yeah, we already had true. guns and the, and, and the government was like, no, 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 we got to take those. 
And for the French, they never had guns. And they realized, shit, we need those. (laughs) (laughs) They might have realized that from the American Revolution. They might have realized that they needed those those guns more than they thought they would have. Because not every revolution is fought by the citizenry taking up arms. Absolutely. Not every not not every revolution is that way, but this yeah. one happens to be and the American one happens to be. Even the Dutch revolution, it was mostly elites and higher ups participating yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. It. it was mostly nobles and their uh, their armies fighting it. Like the average citizen wasn't really No, this is the second yeah. time I would say that the average citizen is involved and actually really it's the first time that the average citizen is involved in in being willing to fight the enemy. Oh yeah. Um, where in the United States we only had three percent support for the revolution at the beginning of it. Three percent. That's it. And it yeah. was mostly uh, the nobility. I mean, the yep. equivalent, the aristocrats. Oh yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing that it's kind of the French Revolution is the first genuine, at first, people's revolution that I can think of happening in Europe yeah, in a long exactly. time. But it I very quickly it, becomes supplanted. There's a very interesting dynamic going on with the French Revolution as well compared to Dutch and um, that both the Dutch and American Revolution focused very much on like a, an external force. Yeah. Uh, so getting rid of the British, getting rid of the Spanish, but there is not really an invader to get rid of. They just have to... Not yet. Well, uh, we'll but, actually yeah. get to that on a, because maybe you have read this, but maybe not, but they basically create that. You know, they, they yeah, basically they create, create an around. invader. This is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Anyway, so, Storming of Bastille. Yeah. So I just pulled this quote right from the wiki um, mm. because I think it's pretty good. Uh, so on 14 July, uh, the insurgents set the rise on the large weapons and ammunition cache inside the Bastille fortress, uh, which was also to, perceived to be a symbol of royal power. After several hours of combat, the prison fell that afternoon. Despite ordering a ceasefire, which prevented a mutual massacre, Governor Marquis Bernard-René de Lunois or something along those lines, was beaten, stabbed, and decapitated. His head was placed on a pike and paraded around the city. Wait, he was decapitated? Do you know if he was guillotined? Uh, no, no, the guillotine comes later. Oh, I was going to say, so he, wasn't, he was decapitated, not guillotined. Yeah, no, the decapitation uh, okay. is very well, much I, like well, in the moment. I was going to say, because the guillotine, as we'll find out later, becomes a very, very important symbol. Oh, yes, very much. Um, so although the fortress had, hold, had held only seven prisoners, uh, four forgers, two noblemen uh, kept for immoral behavior and a murder suspect. Uh, the Bastille served as a potent symbol of everything under the ancien regime, the old regime, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, returning to the Hotel de Ville, or the city hall, uh, the mob accused what was then more or less the mayor, Jacques de Flessel, of treachery and butchered him. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so some more shit happened. Uh, the king is more or less forced to accept a, a cockade, um, which also becomes a very um, important symbol of the revolution. A cockade? I was going to say, I have that in my notes, but it happens somewhere else. What? Where are you? What month or, or date, roughly? Uh, you still, still at Bastille? Around, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you haven't reached October yet? Uh, no. Okay. Right. Uh, but it might be that this... Uh, yeah, this is a bit later on. Let's see. Next thing... I have it's August 89, so I'll hand it back over to you. August of 89? Well, that's still before October if you have, if you have anything you want to add. No, for really. me, Okay. So, and I'm not sure where Flanders is. You have a better geographic understanding of where uh, Flanders is. Flanders, uh, you know Flanders where Belgium is? Belgium is, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, so it's just like the northern half of Belgium. Oh, so it's closer to you. It's, yes. It's, 
Okay. Yeah. So, so actually, um, fun fact: in Flanders, uh, they speak Dutch, and in Wallonia, they speak French. So. Oh, the Walloons, uh, they speak French, yeah, huh? Yeah, the Walloons, yeah. So let me ask you a question about, because uh, this is somewhat important because it does come into play later with how All the right. Netherlands participates. Um, uh, in Flanders, Flanders is what, like, do you, when you use the term Flanders today, what does it mean? Is it a state within Belgium? Is it a region? Is it's, it like a, is it a recognized governmental and representative region, or is it like a geographical region? Uh, well, that's a good question. And a hard ethnic, one to because... The Belgian government is—it's uh, a fucking mess. I was gonna say it's not real. It also, it's not real. It's, <laughs> it's just—it's just South Netherlands, really. I mean, honestly, in Europe, we just kind of agree that you know what—if we're going to war with each other, we do it in Belgium. <laughs> yeah, you go through Belgium, you handle your battles in Belgium, and then you go home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so Flanders, I guess, because what I wanted to know was—is is Flanders? Are they Flemish? That's the that's the yes. ethnic term that you use for them. Yes, the Flemish people. Yes. So it's an ethnic region, really. Yes, but they I believe they also have a Flemish government, and then um, okay, the Flanders also consists of several provinces. Yes. This is but also, they're but they're not but they're a different ethnic group than say the Dutch. They're just a different ethnic group, different um, culture group. I should say culture group. Yeah, certainly yeah, different culture. culture. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly. Okay. That's yeah. But, yeah. Okay. What the only, I only say that because I'm kind of, I want to, so, okay. So in October of 1789, and this becomes another big important moment in this, in this revolutionary period is in October of 1789, troops from Flanders, uh, were called to Versailles for a banquet. Um, ah, so at this, at this now, now, now you re- remember you mentioned mercenaries before yeah. Flanders is not, is a part of, France at this time, I, th- I believe, or it's underneath Louis' control. And if it's not, it's under Habsburg control. So it's, it's, it's within this same family. Yeah, pretty much. Of because, control. Well, the Habsburgs I mean, are, by the way, much because like the, all of the, the nobility in Europe around this time was extremely inbred. Well, <laughs> well, let me say it this way. Uh, the Netherlands at this time, as far as I remember, is under the control of the Habsburg Empire. That might be um, true, yeah. The uh, Flemish region is either also under the control of the Habsburg Empire or is under the control of the French. Now, either way, Marie Antoinette is a Habsburg directly. Yes. Her brother, I believe it is, is the monarch of Holland um, at the time. That might be right. And obviously, I think Louis de Valois is the name of the family. I'm not sure what Louis' family, his dynasty name is. I think it's Valois, but it might not be. Regardless... Louis is from a completely different ruling dynasty, but he's married to a Habsburg. So yes. either way, these troops who are from Flanders are loyal to, because remember the nobility controls the, the generalship. So the troops from Flanders are obviously loyal either to the Habsburgs who are loyal to Marie or they're loyal to uh, Louis directly. So they travel to Versailles and they're invited to a banquet because Louis knows, well, I'm going to start needing troops, right? I need to start getting the troops uh, to be affectionate towards me. So he invites them to a banquet. And in the concluding ceremony of the banquet, the soldiers stand and they give a toast to the king and the queen and they give a standing ovation. And they produce a tricolor, you know, the symbol of the National yes. Assembly at this time. It's not yet adopted into the French flag. Uh, and it's orange, I believe, instead of red at this time. Right. Later it changes, I think. I don't know why that happens, but maybe I'm, it's the same uh, color. I think you might be confused with... The Dutch flag here, because I know the Dutch flag, like they adopt this as as their 
as their flag, like the, the red, white, or the, the orange, white, and blue. But I think the French tricolor is was, the red. was red. Yes. Okay, because the lecturer described it as orange, so maybe he either made a mistake or maybe it was actually still orange at this time and changes sure. later. Who knows? But anyway, they produce a, a tricolor, which is important because it is the flag of the National Assembly. It's not ah, the flag okay. of the king or of France at this time. Yes. It's not the symbol of France. Yes. Uh, the symbol of France is the fleur de lis uh, still. Yes, exactly. So, which is the symbol of the Valois family. Um, so they produce this tricolor flag. And they, well, they don't produce it. They take it off of the um, assembly room in Versailles, symbolically. Yeah. They take it off of the assembly room where the National Assembly used to be. Yes. They put it on, they throw it on the ground, and they lead a procession over it and trample it. And then they take a black cockade, which is a head wrap that a woman would wear, um, and they, they hang it where the flag was hung. And the black cockade, which is it's basically a black head wrap with a white flower on the front, is the symbol of Marie Antoinette. Uh-huh. So they, symbolically, they take um, Marie Antoinette's symbol, which is interesting, they do Marie Antoinette's and not uh, Louis's. Yeah. But Marie has a lot of power. So yeah, it's and whatever. Louis was it's, a weak-ass bitch. We know Yeah, that. yeah. So it's, whatever happens there happens, becomes a major insult to the revolution. And more importantly, it reveals where the military stood. Exactly. On the matter. Yeah. So this becomes a conspiracy theory, more or less. I mean, oh, yeah. a legitimate one, but it becomes a conspiracy theory. So on October 5th... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know uh, where go this ahead. is going. Um, so, so the march, the women's yes, march? Yes. Okay. So um, let but, me do one thing about oh, something yeah, important sure. right before the women's march and anything like that. So by the way, this happens in October, the, 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 the banquet. The, yeah. On October 5th is the women's march. So you're talking about four days when this yep. happened. This is very, very quick. But regardless, uh, I have one note that comes before the Women's March. Uh, news of this was taken as a conspiracy theory against the National Assembly. Uh, and it was compounded of other suspicions, like, had you, had you, like you mentioned, the king was putting off legislation. Mm-hmm. He continued to put off legislation, yep. uh, including the Declaration on the Rights of Man and Citizen. That was one piece of yeah. legislation that he refused to sign uh-huh. for a long time. And so if you want to talk about about the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, you could do that, and then you could talk about the start of the Women's March. Yes. Uh, so I want to go back a little bit uh, okay. to August. Yeah. Um, so yes, that was right. That's right. Since August is, is what my notes say. He was stalling since August. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, because uh, between 4 and 11 August in 89, mm-hmm. um, the National Constituent Assembly, because they, they formed another one at this point, and you'll find that they form a bunch of them that boil down to the same thing uh, throughout this process. Um, they suspend and in 1790 abolish all of the privileges of the first and second estates. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. They also abolish feudalism entirely. Um, what does that actually mean? Like, what does that I'm look not like? Entirely I was sure, going to say, but feudalism a, kind of collapsed a long time ago. Yeah, but hmm. I have a, a quote here from the wiki. Um, so, without debate, the assembly enthusiastically uh, adopted the equality of taxation and redemption of all manorial rights, uh, except for those involving personal servitude, which were to be abolished without indemnification. Other mm. proposals followed with the same success. The equality of legal punishment, admissions of all to public office, abolition of venality in office, uh, mm. conversion of the tithe into payments 
subject to redemption, freedom of worship, prohibition of plural holding of benef benefices, uh, privileges of provinces and towns were offered as a last sacrifice. Um, let's see. Ah, yeah. So uh, peasants, they were supposed to be uh, paying release at first to their lords. Um, however, they just all kind of refused to do that. Um, mm. So that was that. Mm. There was no real further discussion about that. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe if we all did that with our taxes, uh, that would be uh, nice. Yeah, right, right. Uh, can't kill all of us. Um, let's see. Uh, you know who, by the way, is very interesting? Uh, first of all, uh, uh, George Hegel, the philosopher, is, um, I mean, his whole philosophy is based around the French Revolution. Um, and obviously, the student, the most infamous student of Hegel is Marx. Oh, and Marx right. has got some very interesting, I ended up reading uh, one of them, and I forgot the name of it, but I'll read it later. Marx has got some very interesting analysis of the French Revolution. Um, oh. and, and it becomes more interesting later when um, the Sans-Culottes come into the picture, yeah. because that is a genuine socialist movement that I think is probably like a proto, so it's a very, very early. So anyway, we'll get to that later. But yeah. just to say, even like the modern philosophies that we're still dealing with today, a lot of them come from this moment in time yes. a lot of a lot of really really radical and revolutionary things happen at this time including the rights of the declaration of man and citizen or the declaration of the rights of man and citizen um yes it's very revolutionary stuff i mean it really disenfranchises the nobility almost entirely uh it puts into question the the power of the clergy it tries to establish a nation of people it's a very very interesting document and it's oh, no yeah. not surprising why louis wouldn't sign it and okay, now, so now in the timeline of what the listeners, <laughs> the listeners are not hearing it this way probably, but the way that this worked was we just recorded the whole episode except for the part about the Declaration the, uh, yeah. of the Rights of Man and Citizen, and now this is the conclusion which we just recorded after that. <laughs> it's going to be in a completely different order. Anyway, yeah, man, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's funny, I didn't think I cared as much about the French Revolution as I, I actually do. I think it's very interesting. I... um. Remember asking you, I think the French Revolution is the most interesting revolution. Um, and you had s strictly said, no, I disagree with you. Now, is that because you think the Dutch Revolution is the most interesting or because you think the American Revolution is interesting? Well, um, I mean... Because, I, I mean, after this, you can't say yeah. this isn't interesting. No, I mean, <laughs> when, I, when I started this, um, I don't know. I thought maybe uh, the Dutch Revolt would be the most interesting because... It's a much lesser known part of history. Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, it's also much earlier than the other two. I mean, yes, much the early, French much Revolution hundred. and American Revolution happened mm -hmm. almost simultaneously. Um, yeah. And I remember it like from the history lessons back in high school in a much more basic sense. Um, like I, don't, I remember like the terror, but I don't remember it was such a massive shit show. Um, and especially looking at it through the... Uh, constitutional lens, I guess. Um, it's kind of crazy how the French burned through like six constitutions and uh, six different parliaments in the span of like three years. That's right. It was a much more chaotic. And I think it, again, it has to do with the fact that unlike in the US, the dissident elements left in the US, but in France, they didn't. They stayed there. Yeah, I think uh, that's a major part of it. Um, we didn't like, even have a terror in the U.S. No. Because there were, literally weren't enough people who cared either way, I think. Like, remember they say only 3% of the country 
actually fought in the revolution, fought for the revolution in the United States. But that doesn't mean that the other 97% was in support of the monarchy. It probably means the other 97% didn't give a shit. (laughs) That's why they didn't need to be purged. (laughs) They didn't care. Nobody cared. What do you mean federal government? Who cares? Yeah. Another crazy thing is how the French Revolution takes place pretty much exclusively in Paris. Yes. Yes. Whereas at least the American Revolution kind of takes place in New England, more or less. <laughs> I think it goes down, to, it spills down into the Carolinas. It's definitely a much larger geographical area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is I a mean, surprise, I guess. Yeah, it is the US. It's crazy. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Bert. No problems. This was uh, fantastic. Um, and no I am. Uh, so now we have a question you have to give to our audience now. Um, or the audience who managed to listen to the whole three-point thing. <laughs> Maybe you could ask some people who you know did listen. Um, yeah. Where do we go next? Do we continue with Napoleon or do we go to the American Revolution? Let's, let's, let's ask because we could do a bonus episode or just go straight into the third topic. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I'm down good for whatever, question. but we should ask yeah. the people I'm, uh, because the Declaration of the Rights of the Podcaster, you know, <laughs> not out yet. We're uh, beholden to the people. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, let me know uh, on Twitter, via Discord, via Keybase. I will uh, say this. I think they're both, to, to preface, because I know quite a bit about both of them. I know a lot more about the Napoleonic era than I do about mm-hmm. revolutionary France. Um, they're both equally interesting. One of them is a lot more bloody. <laughs> French one. So oh, if you yeah. want to hear about more battles and blood, that's that one. If you want to hear about more political intrigue and ideas, then the American Revolution is the one we can do list. Sweet. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, when this comes out, uh, I'll just put up a, a poll or something on my Twitter and we'll yeah. see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, next time we speak, uh, we will be covering more bloodshed. Um, sure, either way. That is guaranteed. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, we'll be chatting about uh, like how and what in such details. Um, where yeah. do people find you? Uh, uh, you can find me at Carcampit on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and you can listen to my podcast, The Rollo and Slappy Show. <laughs> and that's where you can find me. All right. Um, and I have one more thing to say. Mm. Uh, Trent is an asshole. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I... And I- <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we've been conspiring as well. I'm sure you know. Yeah, yes, he yes. commissioned me to be on his show, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, do not ever listen to Trent's show, not even when birds coming on. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's that. Oh yeah. I just, I just think Louis thought he could just not sign it, and he'd eventually and, win. Yes. It's just he didn't win. <laughs> yeah, no, that uh, losing your head would not be winning. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah, I have one more note, and then I'll hand it back over to you. Um, so August twenty sixth of eighty nine is when the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen mm-hmm. um, is adopted, and I put a little asterisk uh, behind of the citizen because eh, it's not really applicable to everyone. Um, it's applicable to certain people, let's say male over 25. Well, yes, land, yes. And, that, and that's why when I talk about the Women's March, I will, there's very important, like this is, in my opinion, the birth of like modern feminism occurs because of, of yeah. this event. And yeah. I, I will explain why. I'm pretty yeah. sure that that's the case. Yeah. Um, so there's a note from a historian or a quote that I think is um, uh, summarizes pretty well. Uh, these are the founding texts of modern France. Um, they destroyed aristocratic society from top to bottom, 
along with the structure of dependencies and privileges, for the structure, they substituted the modern, autonomous individual, free to do whatever was not prohibited by law. The revolution thus distinguished itself quite early by its radical individualism. <laughs> yeah. Um, except this individualism, as we will later see, uh, not much remains of it. No, it's a different word. Yeah, it becomes a different thing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So go ahead. Okay. So the women's uh, march. I don't know if this has a real name. So I'm just going to call it the Women's March. And I maybe in French, it's just, just it's called call the, the Women's, women's march. march. Yeah, it seems like they, ju- they call it the Women's March. Yeah. Um, but on the 5th of October, a huge crowd of women began to gather in town hall. And they were dissatisfied with the processions that the government was taking, mm-hmm. not only with um, Louis' uh, stalling, of documents like the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, but they were organizing because they were dissatisfied with the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of them, because a lot of the women, and the reason why it's all women is because none of they weren't being represented in the yes, proceedings. Exactly. That's The men didn't feel the need to gather. The women went and did this. So 5,000 women come together, 5,000 French women. I don't know if they're all Parisians. I think a lot of them come from other places or outside of Paris, but they all start gathering in front of the Paris town hall. Uh, When they all gather, they lead a march from Paris to Versailles, which I believe is 10 miles away. So it's a good walk. It's a good walk. Um, And they confront Louis. Mm -hmm. Uh, They demand that he exit his residence and go to um, the assembly hall in town in Paris to sign the legislation. And he's pressured into agreeing. So he goes and he follows them. And this eventually turns into a kind of coerced house arrest. Uh, yes, not, 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 not um, exactly, but 10 miles is a long walk. And so they decide to take residence in the Tuileries Palace uh, in, in Paris, which is where every French king from, I forget who the first French king is, but every French king from the first French king, the first Capet, uh, all the way uh, down to uh, Napoleon III, resides in this building, the Tuileries, uh, except is, um, for the Valois, who uh, build Versailles and leave. Right. Yeah, they build Versailles and they leave, but they're forced to come back. So this is a big uh, sort of symbol, and Louis takes it this way or means to have other wasn't, people take uh, it this way. Uh, wasn't Versailles built by Louis XIV? Or, um... It was definitely built within the Valois dynasty. I don't know oh, okay. which... I don't know who built it. It might have been Louis built it, but regardless... Well, um, it was, I mean, there's been 16 Louis, so it no, was no, I mean, likely a yeah, Louis. <laughs> it was, right, but I think the Louis are all Valois, but I'm not sure. Let's find out who builds it. Who builds Versailles? Uh, Louis XIV. Uh, the first phase of expansion of Versailles took place in 1661, so it's been around for longer than the current ah, okay. Louis. It was created as the royal residence of Louis the fourteenth, uh-huh. who ruled from 1643 until his death in 1715. He was a king of the dynasty of Bourbon, which is what, yes, Bourbon, which is what Louis is. Louis is not a Valois, yes. he's a Bourbon. Yes. That's right. And that actually comes into play later. I don't know if I'll mention it or not, but basically they're in such debt that they sell the Bourbon crown. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's a shit ton of money, an amazing amount of money they get from it, but they're in such debt that they sell it. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so the Women's March was pretty much a direct catalyst of two intellectual movements that still exist to this day. Um, The first and most obvious one, well, we'll go to this, this, that, the most obvious one will be second, because the first one I have less to say about. (laughs) But the first one 
is Edmund Burke actually writes his famous, his magnum opus, Reflections on the Revolution in France, uh-huh. uh, after this. And right. Edmund Burke, if you know anything about Edmund Burke, is, I would say, probably the father of conservative theory to this oh, day. that's interesting. So he, in seeing the Women's March, he comments on it and says, well, how does this happen? What, what kinds of things, why are these women marching? What, do, what does the revolution symbolize? What does this Women's March symbolize? So it really, it all focuses around this Women's March. And then secondly, the more obvious uh, influence that comes out of the march was, of course, feminism. Yeah. Now, feminism, of course, exists before this because feminists exist in order to organize this event. Yes. But this is a, I would say, probably one of the first organized feminist movements in modern history. And you have people like Olam de Gouche, who writes Declarations on the Rights of Women. Oh. So that's her book, and it is her expressing her dissatisfaction. She's French. She expresses her dissatisfaction with the Declaration on the Rights of Man and Citizen, writes the Declaration on the Rights of Woman, where she, she, she expresses what she would like to see from the Declaration on the Rights of Man and Citizen. And if it was truly a declaration for all French people, it would include women, and she goes into what that would look like. And then the other woman, who's an even more important figure in global feminism, is Mary Wollstonecraft, who writes Vindication of the Rights of Women in response uh-huh. to this event. She's living at the time of this event. Both yeah. of these women are alive at the time of this event. Mary Wollstonecraft is, as far as feminism goes, a hero of feminism, probably one of the founding mothers of feminism. And interestingly enough, her husband, uh, and I just want to make sure that I get his name right because I always forget his last name, but Mary Wollstonecraft's, uh, let me do it through the daughter because the daughter is interesting too. I don't know if you know this, but so uh, William Godwin is uh, the husband of Mary Wollstonecraft. And William Godwin, if you know, is probably the first political philosopher ever to identify as an anarchist. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Secondly, their daughter, so William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter is Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. Holy shit. Yeah, so pretty cool, pretty cool family. Obviously, yeah. Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft, the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Godwin, married and got her last name Shelley by marrying Percy Shelley, the famous poet. So this Jesus is a pretty, fucking Christ. Yeah, so this is a pretty dope family. <laughs> fucking yeah. yeah. But it's a pretty revolutionary family in, yeah, in, in general. And Mary Wollstonecraft is sort of the matriarch of this family. In fact, Mary Wollstonecraft, I think William Godwin kind of bows to Mary Wollstonecraft in a lot of ways in his writing, respects her a lot, calls her a major influence. So really Mary Wollstonecraft, who's like one of the earliest modern feminists in European, and I would argue in American history too, um, you know, she's behind, uh, she's inspired by this, this march. So yeah. you have some major things that come out of this march just in and of themselves unrelated to the revolution. But anyway, let's get back to the revolution. Yeah. Um, just a quick note, something I'd, uh, I'd maybe read about. There's a, a striking thing where um, people that have some sort of cultural occupation, I don't know, writers, uh, uh, actors, whatever. Yeah, to be romantics. Yes, romantics and people yes. like that, basically. Yes. Um, was uh, an interesting. It is, yeah. Yeah, they always seem to be willing to challenge the status quo. But, but interestingly, of course, the women who did the marching, I mean, they weren't writers, right? No, they weren't no, artists or anything. Like, they were probably seamstresses. And she, I mean, probably this is before a seamstress. But yeah, it is interesting that the artists come and they communicate the ideas that all these seamstresses and such are fighting for oh, down yeah. on, the, on yeah. the field. Um, um, what do you have as your next date? Because I'm going to leave the Women's March and go to my next uh, thing in June of 91. Okay, now I have some things between this. 
So remember, uh, uh, October fifth of seventeen eighty nine is the is the march. So yes. we're talking, and my next note comes seventeen ninety one. So anything you want to throw in between that, you can. Yeah, I have um, a few notes. One is kind of general. It spans between eighty nine and ninety three. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of anti religious fuckery goes on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And this is before the terror. Oh yeah, and we'll get into this later. Um, but uh, there's a whole weird thing um, from changing, changing the calendar from seven to ten days. In well, the week. I could I uh, can explain the reason later. the cult of the shrimp being. Yeah, we'll mm-hmm. get into it later because it becomes more That's relevant right. later on. Immanuel Kant has a lot of interesting writing on how Napoleon kind of embodies this. But yes, during this period of time. The Enlightenment happens, obviously. And so with the questioning of religion and the questioning of all kinds of religion, you have to remember, even the calendar is of religious origin. Ah, of course. Even the calendar is of a not a rational origin. So what they start doing is, yes, they make the calendar work by 10 days. Not yeah. by seven-day weeks, you know? Yeah. So be, be, out of rationality, it's very strange what ends up happening. That could probably have a whole episode in and of itself, the, oh, the, yeah. weird, the weird obsessions, how when you take away religion from this particular society, they have to replace their reasoning with other forms of reasoning. And it's interesting to see the kind of things that result from that, like the calendar. Like the yes. calendar is probably the most interesting. Well, it's one of them. And then you have a lot of the priest and nun killings that start happening later, but that mostly yep. happens during yeah, we'll the get terror. Into that later as well. Yeah. Um, um, I actually don't so, cover much of that. So if you have information on the stuff that's going, I have a lot of external stuff. You might we'll have more see. internal stuff. We'll see. So um, let's see. I, another thing I had is that. It's oh, here, by the way, oh, yeah. 1791 is what I have when they fr- flee the country. So anything that happens before then that you want to cover, you could, you could do. Yeah. Yeah, I have the same thing in 91. Uh, but before that, I have some, uh, some other things, some details, yeah, okay. essentially. Um, so it's also around this time that uh, the ideas of the left and the right wing start uh, or, or find their origin. Mm-hmm. Um, so the right wing is essentially the conservative side of the revolution, mm-hmm. which yes. sounds a bit weird, but they are really pushing for the constitutional monarchy. The, the Girondin, right? The, yeah. the Girondin? Yeah. yeah, the Girondins or Girondins, or whatever. Whatever, I um, don't know, yeah. <laughs> and then all the way, uh, so they were sitting all the way on the right, like That's right, in uh, the third state. And then all the way on the left, uh, Jacobin, you had the Jacobins, right? yeah. um, mm-hmm. who were... And I would argue the there's book. a group, there's a group even more on the left than the Jacobins. They're just not in the government yet. Yes. The yeah. Saint-Coulot, I think, probably, Yeah. Uh, if yeah, you they, cover them. Because I think they come up around this time. I don't cover much of them. Uh, oh, I, I find they, them so interesting. That's good. I'll cover them then. That's great. Um, so, yeah, that's where the right and left wing come from. Um, and I take this as evidence that uh, conservatism is not a valid ideology. Um, because, I mean, conservatives were pushing for keeping the crown. Uh, but now I wouldn't uh, hear any American conservative that wants the English king back. So no, there but, we go. But, but you may hear American conservatives defend the executive branch. Yes. Like the president. Yep. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, um, that's what I know. Genuinely, I, I, I agree with you. And I think conservatism is incompatible in a constitutional system. I, yes. I genuinely do think that, at least in a constitutional monarchic system. But yes. you definitely do have people who then come and replace the monarchy 
because they didn't like the way that the person was chosen, i.e. Mm-hmm. By, by inheriting the position, but they still like the fact that there's a single executive head of government. Yes. And yes. I think that's what they take a lot out of. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, the, do you, what do you, can you tell me about the Jacobin? Because I, I actually haven't done any, any looking into the Jacobin at all for my research. Um, I didn't find bit. them to be that interesting. Did uh, Robespierre come from the Jacobin? Yes. yes. Okay, yeah. Robespierre is a Jacobin. Um, whatever. I actually don't talk Robespierre much about him either. I was um, going to say, I don't, talk much, I don't actually cover much of the terror. So if you want to talk uh, about all that, you can. I get into terror a bit more, I think, but we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. So let's see. Um, in around 1790, some irregularities happened in the French army. Um, this is due to the way it's organized. Uh, officers drawn from nobility, soldiers drawn from peasantry. Um, so officers can't really keep order within their own ranks anymore. Right, yeah. Um, it's also around this time that Jacobin clubs, um, and Jacobin clubs at this point were just kind of debating clubs. Uh, they were just clubs where people with political ideas went and, and talked. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first, this is not bad but it will become very bad in a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, June 20th, the king flees Paris. Yes, okay. Uh, 91. Yeah. yeah, 91. All right, so they flee. Well, the whole family flees, actually. Yes. So they flee the Tuileries, and they um, and it's actually a famous, you can search this up online, uh, the flight, you can search the royal flight, I believe it's called, and look up some of the political cartoons that were written. There are oh, some amazing political cartoons that are written of this, of um, Louis and Marie um, trotting through shit in the city. <laughs> it's uh, people sticking their asses out of windows and shitting on them as, they, <laughs> as they're fleeing the city through the sewers. Um, this is, so this is some of the kinds of, this is basically that they were mocked horribly. They were hated, absolutely hated by, even by the publishers of newspapers at this point, everybody, everybody hated them. Um, so they, they had complained that they had felt trapped since they were forced to live in the Tuileries. So you can't really blame them for that. Um, their, um, plan was to flee to the Austrian Netherlands, uh, Mm -hmm. territory, which was ruled by the queen's family. Like I said before, the Habsburg family, uh, the family uh, exited the palace, but they were caught along the way. So, you know, <laughs> I like to picture it this way. What the lecturer was explaining was, you know, these are kings and queens, of course. So they're even in their fleeing a country, they, ha- they have to be like kings and queens. Yeah. So yes. they insisted on every major town they stopped in, they would stop the wagon and change the horses out and exit the carriages and, you know, fraternize with the common folk and things like that to kind of, you know, yeah. uh, display themselves as, ah, it's your king and queen entering your town, things like that. So these dummies. So they were caught, of course, in the city of Varennes, which is, uh, if, again, this may be good for you or anybody who's good with geography. It's a small town to the east of Paris, and it's, it's nestled just to the west of that connecting border line between Luxembourg, Belgium, and France. Ah, so it's okay. right around that region. So they made it pretty close to yeah. being outside of French territory, but they got caught right along the yeah. near border. Um, um, I they probably know. travel less than 100 miles, which is what's funny yeah. in total when you think yeah. about how not yeah. far that actually is. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Uh, things in Europe are much closer together than around. And they got caught, that would mean they got caught within a pretty short space. Not a short time, but a short space. It's just funny to think. Yep. Couldn't even do that right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, here's the problem now with the flight 
is oh, yeah. it, it's more, and you would think most people made up their minds, but of course not everybody has made up their mind yet, but it, but it does kind of serve as just another nail in the coffin of the idea. The King is not going to cooperate. He's never going to cooperate. The world, he's never going to cooperate ever. So the constitutional monarchist is Girondin, like you said, mm-hmm. they have to figure out a way to, to uh, cover for the, the King. So they come up with this ridiculous theory that he was abducted and he what? was stolen away. So they try and push this through. And the National Assembly, even though many of the members at this time are testifying that they know that this can't possibly be a reasonable story that he was abducted from the Tuileries, yeah. they go with it. And they pursue this. The National Assembly pursues this to the public, right? Because the Girondins are still in most of the control yeah. uh, right now. So they pursue to the public. They tell the public well, look, they, the, the king was actually abducted. They were actually, because they were basically trying to prevent a full riot and, and just gang killing of the monarchy, which would throw the entire city into absolute chaos. Oh, yeah. Because um, at this time, a lot of people still believe in it. So yeah. demonstrations begin outside of the National Assembly Hall, and they, they say the flight was not an abduction, it was an abdication. So that's how yes. they turn it again. So that becomes a famous cry of, uh, of the French Revolution is uh, abdication, not abduction. Uh-huh. And so the flight to Varennes, which is what it ends up being known as, that's what it's called if you want to look mm-hmm. up the cartoons, the flight to Varennes, it, uh, it shatters the hope that the, will, that, the part, that the powers will ever want to sign this constitution or move the constitutional revolution forward. And it becomes obvious that uh, the monarchy's cooperation, uh, the lack of cooperation, rather, was what was preventing a post-revolutionary period from beginning. So this is a very important thing to start to understand. Their reasoning here is, wait a minute. The, the nobility's mere existence becomes a, a something that prevents the post-revolution from beginning. So political opposition threatens to spill over into counter-revolution at this point. So there's a reactionary response to the nobility's subversion, and it was an equally subversive militant group. So this is where the Saint-Culot come into the picture. This group uh, of, I would say, tradesmen, lower-class workers... Uh, skilled tradesmen, they organize from what they used to be, which was just skilled tradesmen, and they organize into this militant, semi-political group. And this becomes very interesting for the history of Paris. Um, This group, they were called Saint-Coulot, which in French means without breaches. So what that basically is meant to symbolize is the fact that these were working men who preferred to protest and to do their business instead of in the traditional way a man would dress for a public occasion in breeches, they would go out into public wearing their work clothing. Yes. So that's why they become known as the Saint-Coulot. Ah, These two, this group, or rather, it wasn't a group at the time, but the people who make up this group are the same people who stormed the Bastille and Les Invalides. So it's the same group oh, of people. Okay. So think of Antifa. Imagine Antifa, right, before it was a group. Those yeah. people still existed and they still yeah, protested exactly. and things like that. Yeah. Now imagine Antifa organizes into a militant um, police force of sorts. Yes. That's basically what the Sanculo become. They yes. become Paris's uh, police force. So, but the problem is here, to the National Assembly and the Girondin that exist, the Sanculo are a problem as well because the Sanculo represent direct democracy. Yeah, the Sanculo, <laughs> yeah, which the, 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 the um, National Assembly does not want direct democracy, the Sanculo oh. begin to break away from the National Assembly as well. And the Sanculo say, well, we don't need a derivative representative form of government. We're here. 
You know, we're all right here. So they start to become unsatisfied. And what they do is they don't actually take anything out on the National Assembly. They say, well, look, if we're going to establish a real revolution, then we need to maintain constant vigilance over that resolution. So they become a police force in the city of Paris. Shift. Yeah. So this, if if you're hearing the language here and you're familiar with what happens in Russia, not long after this, maybe 150 years or so, Trotsky takes a huge amount of inspiration from the Saint-Culot and the idea of a state of permanent revolution. Holy shit. That, that all stems from the Saint-Culot's idea that the only way that we're going to be able to have direct democracy is in a constantly revolting state. So that's how, they, that's how this all begins. So that's how Trotsky takes Marxism and yeah. creates Trotskyism, is purely through that idea. Marxism, Holy as you'll shit. know, Leninism, specifically Marxism-Leninism, yeah. is you create a vanguard, right? You create a representative group of intellectual uh, working class men who make the decisions for the proletariat and lead the dictatorship of the proletariat through to communism, right? That's how Leninism is supposed to work in theory. Yeah. For Trotsky, the, you don't ever have this period where communism sort of becomes a thing and never gets washed away. There will always be forces that will seek to fight against communism. And so you must create a permanent revolution of the proletariat. So a constant sense like the Sankulo had, where the proletariat themselves, or the Sankulo in this case, who are the proletariat, it's the same, remember, it's the same idea. Marx uses proletariat and bourgeoisie. The, you know, they're French concepts. Yes. So even Marx pulls from this. So the Sankulo are that constantly revolting force which, which represents and enacts the will of the proletariat directly. So it's basically vigilante justice, but class in, in a class-oriented sense. Yeah, holy shit. It's very interesting. And it all comes from this period. Trotskyism comes from this period too. I mean, as well as Marx taking all of his ideas from his inspirations through this period of time, as well as the um, Civil War. He gets a lot of his ideas through both of those periods. Right. Um, so the Sankulo inspired Leon Trotsky in 1917. Okay. So the next part goes, uh, as an attempt to save the monarchy, the Girondins still wanting to save the monarchy because they believe it's the only, the monarchy will help to secure, uh, you know, a, a proper nation rather yes. than what the Sankulo want, which is just a wild, you know, directly democratic commune, you know, they, so they established the Paris commune and the um, assembly does not establish a commune of sorts. Rather, it wants to save the monarchy. So this was guided by the idea that war... Sorry, sorry. So in an attempt to save that monarchy, the Girondins begin pressing for war. Right. So, so the idea was, well, if we create war with an external force, we accomplish two goals. Number one, the people will unify against a common enemy. Yes. This enemy will be outside of the country rather than the nobility which are inside of the country. Yes. Secondarily, the king, who still has a large majority of support in the military, will be able to prove himself in that conflict as a willing and subservient member to the government, leading uh-huh. the armies, doing all these things. Yeah. So that was their idea, the Girondins' idea. It's not a terrible idea as a way to try and stabilize <laughs> the country for the moment being, but maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We'll get into it. Well, this um, is... Go can ahead. I add a quick note here? Um, yes. <laughs> so this threat from outside is very legitimate. Um, oh, yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. Because in uh, August 91, the uh, whole Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, uh, King of Prussia, and um, uh, some count that is the king's brother, 
um, like Louis' brother, um, they issued the Declaration of Pilnitz, uh, essentially hinting that they will invade France to put the king back on the throne. That's right. Well, I actually do get to that. Ah, okay. I do. And now you have that on, uh, what date 91. is that? 91? Oh, yeah. so I don't have that. So I missed that. So that happens later again. So it actually happens okay. twice. Interesting. Yeah. So when it happens again, it's a huge, huge problem for Paris, but we'll get into that part. Um, I want to talk about the impulse, the impulse okay. that the Girondin had. So the other, the other part of it was that the reason why there was this war was not only so that Louis could prove his willingness to participate in the government, but remember who they were going to war against. They would be going, at this time, Europe is all monarchies, except yes. for the Italian republics. They're all monarchies in Europe, yes. all of them. So what we're dealing with is not a, an idea that Louis would be forced to go to war against other monarchies. What the Girondin wanted was for Louis to participate in wars against despotism. So the idea that the monarch is the only one who holds the power no good. Right. The Girondin want the monarchs to stay because the monarchs have always had a good place in the government controlling the military. So that's why right. um, th this idea is not to go to war against the monarch. It's to go to war against despotism. Think about this. They've just created something new. It's an evangelical impulse and a new concept which says, no, 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 this is not a war that we want to have based on conquest. You know, it's not the French people who will benefit from this. And it's not a war of self-defense either because we haven't been attacked. And really, in being honest, there hasn't been a legitimate threat of us being attacked yet. There's been a lot of cautioning by other nations around us not to behave in certain ways, but nobody's actually directly threatened us yet. So it's a new kind of war driven by a sense of altruism. And the professor who uh, did the lecture that I watched on this, Raymond Jonas of the University of Wisconsin, uses a great um, uh, phrase here. He says, this drive is the mother of all wars of nation building and the ancestor of every civilizing mission. And I think it's a really fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. But it's true. The Girondin's conception of this war is new. It's not new to us. We are already familiar with the idea of nation building and going to war with other countries to change the way they think. Yes. Right? But that's new here. That's a yes. new idea here. So Jacques Brissot and his group, who are the Girondins, are the ones who support this impulse. Because remember, they want to maintain the monarchy as a, as a part of the government, just not the only dominant one. So they are a part of the National Assembly, but they're not pure royalists. They don't want just control by the monarchy. So Jacques Brissot is the head of this group, the Girondins, that support going to war with despotism. Think of them as the neocons, the war hawks. <laughs> yeah, basically. Right? Think of them that way. Not not 100%, but I would say again, and what's funny is as well, uh, neoconservatism, a lot of it has its birth in Trotskyism, and Trotskyism has a lot of its birth in this specific period of time. Yes. So it's, it's, it's very, it is kind of the way that problems are solved actually do end up carrying through, even though I would say neocons have a very different and less sincere interest than the Girondin had. Because the Girondin, it was new to the Girondin. Yes. They were like, well, yes. we, we got to try something new here. The neoconservatives, it wasn't new. Nation buildings wasn't new to them. So I would say similar but different. I think more innocent. Now, anyway, Robespierre, Maximilien Robespierre, who is a member of, think of the Girondin as the Republican Party and think of the Democrats, uh, or think of the... Uh, Jacobins as the Democrat Party. Now, obviously, don't think of that in the terms of what they believe, but where they stand in government. It's the yes. two groups. Basically, yes. just there's two parties involved. Now, there's other smaller parties, but these are the two major parties. Uh, Robespierre is one of the heads of 
the Jacobin party, and he is actively opposed to Brissot and to warmongering. Robus, which is interesting because of what we know about Robespierre leading oh, the, yeah. uh, later on. So he's not actually against violence. He's just against war which I think is quite interesting. Uh, Robespierre speaks out against the war with great conviction and a- attacks the idea that French armies could ever really liberate any, anyone's minds. And he has a famous quote here, which I think is great, but also really ironic, again, when you think about what he tried to do later and succeeded in, unfortunately. Uh, but here's his quote. The most extravagant idea that can arise in a politician's head is to believe that it is enough for a people to invade a foreign country to make it adopt their laws and their constitution. No one loves armed missionaries. It's a great Holy quote. shit. Yeah, but it is funny to yeah. think about how much, uh, I don't know if it's Robespierre directly or what the institution he creates later, how much that quote is just trampled on by the things he creates. It is kind of interesting. Um, it's crazy because he's entirely unf- right, but he's also... Yeah, yeah, hypocrite. But, yeah, absolutely. And I don't even know if he's a hypocrite because he makes this quote long before he installs any institutions. And by the time the terror institutions are installed, he's kind of losing power of them very quickly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, so I don't really yeah. know. Robespierre is a very interesting character who I always thought was called Robespierre. But now I know it's <laughs> Robespierre. Uh, anyway, on 420... Shout out to 420, which maybe you should release this episode on 420. So shout out to 420. Uh, On 420 of 1792, the assembly votes to declare war on the Habsburg king Francis II. Francis II, this is important. This was a very purposeful decision. In taking on Francis II, the brother of Marie Antoinette, the queen of France, Uh uh, the assembly was able to claim that it was taking on a tyrant on behalf of the very same people who... Francis's family had tyrannized. Right. So, so the French people, they, the assembly believed that they could get all the French people to unify because Against, yeah. the Habsburg family had been tormenting the Netherlands and the Austrians the same way that Marie and her husband's family had been tormenting the French. So this was kind of their idea of how they could get the war to be um, sponsored by most of the people. Yeah. Now, the problem here, of course, is that this war, and this is why Robespierre didn't support it, this war was going to risk absolutely everything. Oh, because yeah. Because this war was against another nation, or empire even, really. Oh, yeah. And it was a war that Louis and Marie actually supported. They wanted the government to go to war with the Habsburgs <laughs> because they truly believed that the French Revolution would fail in the process of trying to fight uh, um, the joint armies uh, controlled by the Habsburgs. So why do they think this? Well, reasonable. I think so, yeah. It's pretty reasonable. The nobility all left the French military. All of the generals fled the country yeah, exactly. at this point. So while the militaries were, uh, while, the, while a large percentage of the military was still supportive of the king and queen, all the generals were gone because everybody knew that at some point the military was going to turn. Right? Oh, yeah. So this, remember that the whole reason why they wanted to start this war was to give Louis the chance, as well as the military the chance, uh-huh. to redeem itself. Yeah. Right? So uh, they did thing, that. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing with this is, um, I mean, the Habsburgs had deep pockets. Like, yeah, yeah, they control the banks. Exactly. Um, and, I mean, France being, at this point, kind of without any real way of collecting finances, was broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, an army is way, not going to find by the way, faith. And, by the way, it's 1792. They were near declaring bankruptcy in 1786. Exactly. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't mention this little tidbit. Can I just say oh, this? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Let's think about it this way. From, let's go back to the very beginning of the lecture here. We talked about the financial crisis that precipitated this whole thing. Yes. Right? Because of the wars they fought, the rising grain prices, all this stuff. Well, to give you some perspective of how bad it was, by 1786, again, we are now on 1792. Yes. But back in 1786, the debt maintenance, that is the amount of money that had to be paid out by France's revenue every year in order to support the maintenance of the debt, that is to say the interest payments and things like that, exactly. was half of France's yearly revenue. Oh, oh, oh Jesus That Christ. was in 1786. That was before Necker made the, pudge, the budget public. Yeah. So that was long ago. So anyway, just to give you some perspective of how much worse we're, we're six years later at this point, six years after that, it's not gotten better. <laughs> I can tell oh, you that much. And now they're talking about starting another war. Now, the difference here is the National Assembly has to pay for the war, not the king. Yes. Obviously. So it's, it, it's a different group that has a different kind of debt. But obviously, the debt's going to be inherited, of course. So this is a huge amount of debt. Just a, a tremendous amount of debt at this point. So where are we at now? Find a brand. Nobility uh, leaving. 91. Oh, yes. Right here. So uh, charming as a woman as she was. Um, uh, so the, 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 as we had said, the, there was an expectation that the revolutionary France and the National Assembly's military was going to lose any war against the Habsburg Empire. So Louis was convinced of it. Uh, he was convinced that without the officers, they'd lose uh, and Marie was so convinced of it that she sent letters to her friends, which mocked the French citizenry, calling them fools and saying that if they were to go to war, it would only help the nobility, which again, she wasn't wrong at the time. Not entirely. <laughs> she just didn't do her calculations right. Yep. <laughs> uh, so Austrian, so here's the thing. As you had mentioned, Austrian and, Fran uh, Austrian and Prussian militaries began to mobilize on the... Mm -hmm. So it's at this time that they start doing that. Uh, uh, people in France are starting to get very nervous. Uh, people in Paris are starting to get very, very nervous. The National Assembly passes legislation that calls provincial National Guard units to join the army in defense of the nation. So they know they're going to get attacked. They just don't know how. They don't know what the plan is. The, when they figure out what the plan is, it causes absolute panic. Well, I'll get into that later. But right now, all they know is that the Habsburgs know that they're going to declare war and the Habsburgs are getting ready, so we need to get ready. Yes. So they pass, or they attempt to pass, sweeping legislation that calls up every National Guard unit in France to join the military. That would be like if, for my U.S. listeners, uh, that would be like as if every National Guard was mobilized by the U.S. president to fight the war in Afghanistan. Imagine how many more troops would be called up, how many more people. And National Guards are kind of different because they're sort of the boys and girls at home. You know, they're not yeah. stationed overseas. So yeah, this is exactly. a very serious matter to call up the entire National Guard. They're calling up oh, all yeah. the militias. So the Constitution, of course, requires Louis to sign every single piece of legislation. Yes. And guess what he does? He, he stalls. <laughs> he <Yes>. stalls. <laughs> Does not. The king is stalling, of course, for obvious reasons. He wants to weaken the manpower of France's military uh, in the face of, obviously, Austrian and Prussian militaries who, of course, think about the year this is. This is the 1800s. We're talking about the Austrian and Prussian militaries. The Prussian yes. military is the greatest military force that has ever existed in the history of the world. And people need to understand that even though they weren't major conquerors, they were the greatest military force ever to exist. Oh, so this is, this is the kind of thing that the French know Yes, of <laughs> you know, course, the, you know. <laughs> the kind of thing they know that this is coming, so they're, they're starting to panic. So tolerance of the nobility uh, reaches an all-time low and basically is broken at this point. When the king refuses to sign 
this piece of legislation that calls up the National Guards, I would say that this is the moment that in the minds of the French people, the French king has abdicated his seat. Right. Uh, because he refuses to do what is necessary to defend his nation, right? So I, yes. I would think this is the most reasonable way you could say, well, he stopped participating in it, but the rest of us are still here, so we are mm-hmm. something new. So it's interesting, I will say, it is interesting to note that the National Guard just descend on Paris anyway. You know, <laughs> They say, fuck it, we don't need the legislation, we're going to go help the, the, the French people. Mm-hmm. And they go and they descend on Paris, and they join and they all convene in Paris and they get ready to fight. It's interesting to note that this act is illegal under the Constitution. And in a sense, really? it, it was the first, well, it is because it was never signed. So it's an illegal ah, act. If you're a National course. Guardsman, yeah. you can't call yourself up. So it's an illegal act. So it's interesting to note that this is an illegal act under the Constitution in service of the constitutional government. And remember that a lot of people were, like I, like I had mentioned, and like a lot of the Jacobins were saying, this was the instance that everybody was afraid of where the revolution was going to lose its gains. Because now people are going against the constitution in order to save the country. The National Guard is disobeying the constitution in the state of a crisis, and it foreshadows all the extra constitutional behavior that happens later in the terror. So this is the first instance of the National Assembly stopping becoming a constitutional government. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a bit that's somewhat related to this. Yeah, go ahead. Um, So September 30th, um, the National Constituent Assembly adjourns for last time. Yeah. This was essentially the National Assembly uh, formation that was in charge of actually forming a constitution. Yeah, right. Um, and then uh, I believe it's like October 1st or 2nd that the new legislative essentially uh, assembly, I mean, um, comes together. Um, right. So We are uh, in, by the way, um, the war was declared on 420, remember, April 20th. Yeah, yeah, April so, 20th. So, so now 91, we are, right? I have, yeah, next date I have that places us on the 10th of August, and it's a very significant date. Ah, um, yeah, go ahead. That, that is the moment that the National Assembly completes its job. Uh, they create a constitution and France becomes a republic. Yes. Uh, on the 10th of August of 1792. So like you said, they, uh, they are dissolved eventually, and they become yes. a different kind of thing. So this date is known as the insurrection. Uh-huh. Um, the day when uh, the saint and all of the National Guardsmen descend on Paris, um, they uh, organize an illegal attack on the Tuileries. Uh, wh- and remember that the, the, the royal family is not there, or, or rather they are there, but they organize an attack on the facility. Uh, right. the, and it's illegal, of course. The royal's uh, place of residence obviously. Uh, Louis refuses to abdicate still, despite the direction of both Pierre Verneau and uh, who was a a Girondist war hawk who supported the monarchy's place in the national body politic, and Marguerite Gaudel, who was one of the actual negotiators for abdication, uh, who had previously supported the monarchy, but later Gaudel goes on to vote for Louis and Marie's death penalty. So this guy who was Uh cautioning Louis the whole time, Louis, please abdicate, really, you need to abdicate. Eventually, Louis doesn't abdicate, and Godot becomes the guy who was warning him, one of two people who was directly responsible for warning him to abdicate, yeah. uh, goes on to vote to kill him when the <laughs> time comes. Wow. He was like, I gave you a chance. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is the big moment, I would say, we were talking about significant dates. Yeah. Well, this is another, uh, same thing as the Bastille, I would say. This is another extremely yeah, significant close. moment in French history, is September of 1792. 
Austrian right. armies enter French territory and they camp just days from Paris. Holy uh, shit. Yeah. They, they land in a, a place called Valmy, which is a farmland, probably, right. well, like a few days out of Paris, a few days walk out of Paris. Uh, the Duke of Brunswick, who is the brother of Marie Antoinette and a Habsburg uh, member of the, dy- of, of the Habsburg dynasty, uh, is in totality of command of the invading force, which is made up of Austrian, Brunswickian, and uh, Prussian soldiers. It's 50,000 or so men. Jesus. So the Duke of Brunswick makes, I would call a horrible mistake, but regardless of what it was, it's an absolute ultimatum on the city of Paris. He says, if any harm comes to the king or queen before we accomplish our goal, we will burn down the city of Paris. Oh, Jesus. So he threatens a full... And, and again, now Americans have very little conception of what that really means. But in European history, there were cities that do not exist anymore because of yeah. raisings and burning. So Europeans have, when you threaten to burn down a city in the U.S., the only thing people think of is basically during the Civil War, uh, Ulysses Grant burns down Georgia. And the only people who really have any connection to that are people from Georgia or the <laughs> South. But for everybody else, it's a huge deal to say we're going to burn down that city because this is Paris, right? Oh, this yeah. is where Charlemagne was <laughs> crowned king of the Holy Roman Emperor. I, I'm not, not really. I but mean, this, this is, is, our, this is this literally is the capital city. of France. It is the capital of France and one of the centers of Europe and ha- yes. was one of the centers of Europe during the Renaissance. Uh, it's just a huge, so it's a, a crazy thing to say. It would be like saying we're going to burn down Rome. It's like insane. Pretty much. We're going to yeah. burn down New York. It won't exist after we're done with <laughs> it. So that's what he threatened. And he's serious about it. And, and the, the, the Parisians take him as serious about yeah. it. Uh, my, hey, Siri, she came up. She th- <laughs> uh, so anyway, they take it serious. Thank you, Siri. Thank you for talking to us about Chicago. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Uh, so the Duke's threat was not met with compliance. Obviously, the French didn't give up. Rather, it threw the city of Paris into total panic. So again, anybody who's French or knows anything about French history knows the se- that the September of 92 is uh, when the panic begins. Uh, right. By the time, by this mo- time, the prisons of Paris, let's think about the prisons of Paris, right? Let's, let's right. think about them. So who was being imprisoned at this time? Well, if vigilante justice under the saint was on, in place, who do you think was being arrested? The nobility, loyalists, royals, supporters of those things, people like that, right? So now... Yeah. The very few prisons that there are in Paris, the Bastille being one of them, although mm-hmm. I think the Bastille was retired as a prison, so maybe that's not true. Get rid of that. But all the prisons in Paris are becoming overfilled with political prisoners. Yeah. So the fear is that if Paris falls, all the prisons are opened. Oh, dear. And all of those people are now let out and that revenge would be sought. And actually, yes. now... I don't want to, this is obviously not something that the French at the time knew, but it is something that we can look back on and say actually does happen. How? Well, this happens in Rwanda. This is exactly what, what happens oh, in Rwanda shit. between the Tutsis and the Hutu. I, and excuse me for not remembering which group is which, but <laughs> the minority group, which controlled the government, eventually was overthrown. Many of them were imprisoned. And then when it looked like, uh, I forget which country it was, said they were going to intervene in the Tutsis. I think it was the Tutsi or the ruling family. Uh, a foreign country said they were going to intervene for the Tutsis and reestablish Tutsi power over the government. It might have been Belgium or it might, I don't remember who it was, but, um, or it might have been another African country. So who, what did the Hutus do? Well, they start killing all the Tutsis in the prisons. Jesus Christ. 
So this, ha- I mean, this has like been employed many times over, but it's also kind of frighteningly a reasonable thing to think that if you start imprisoning all your enemies and then they get out of prison when all your enemies ain't dead now, now they can all organize. They've been organizing in prison this whole time. Yes. You know? yes. So what happens, of course? Well, purges begin. Oh, geez. And the Sanculo lead the effort in the purges. Yeah. Some prisoners were given trials, but most of them were killed. Uh, yeah. By the end of the purge, 2,000 people or so were dead. Shit. Yeah, this, I have, it, it basically consists of, of, of average citizens, vigilantes, Sanculo, flooding prisons and literally killing prisoners in their prison cells. Jesus Christ. Sending yeah. some higher profile prisoners to trial. I, I couldn't find the number of how many were declared innocent of whatever it was the purges were trying to uh, <laughs> declare people guilty of. But we're talking about 2,000 people dead which is a pretty significant number if you're talking just the prison population of one city. Oh, yeah. Um, especially when you talk about people literally storming prisons and killing people. Prison guards themselves, in fact, taking it upon themselves to kill prisoners, uh, depending on whether or not they were uh, convicted of royalism or whatever the case may be. So that happened. Oh, yeah. Um, so after those massacres, which take four days, or, or do you have something? I have a, a few minor additions. Okay, go ahead. Um, uh, uh, by the way, uh, the the battle is what I have next. So anything ah, before then, you can. Okay, the battle takes place when again? Battle takes place on the twentieth of September. Okay, yeah. Uh, let me see. Um, yeah, so basically between nineteen seventy one and nine or seventeen ninety one and seventeen ninety two, the constitutional mar- monarchy just fails. Um, mm-hmm. War is declared on Austria. Yep. Uh, the French army invades. The Austrian Netherlands, so Belgium, Luxembourg, essentially. Um, And uh, yeah, so then the battle happens. So they actually do successfully invade Austrian Netherlands. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. So the battle happens. All right. So this is the big moment, really. Um, This isn't usually the case in most wars, but it happens to be the case in a lot of revolutionary wars where there's sort of just one war or one battle rather. And that kind of (laughs) dictates sort of all of the, (laughs) all of the, conclusions of things but in this case as far as i know in the french revolution as far as what the national assembly's army fought it wasn't that many different conflicts but anyway on the 20th of september uh the national assembly's armies national guard units saint culot as well as uh regular citizens in the the supply chain uh descend on a wooded area around the moulin de valmy which is a will a windmill in the center of this big farming valley outside of paris Right. Uh, it's called the Moulin de Valmy, and that's important because the Moulin obviously is a you know you know it's a windmill. Yeah. Um, the camp was stationed around the windmill because obviously, what does a windmill do? Well, it mills grain so you can make bread. Exactly. So their their camp was centered around this windmill so they could have food, a food supply. So uh, uh, when the we'll call them the alliance or the invasion, you can call them whatever you want. Uh, when the Brunswickian, uh, Prussian, and Austrian forces. Uh, figure out that this convergence has occurred and these uh, French armies are descending on the valley, they move into the woods and they go into the woods and they fight uh, an artillery battle uh, ah, okay. with, 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 with the artillery uh, uh, coming out of the woods and trading blows with the artillery of the French while the actual uh, armies wait and watch. Right. It's at this moment that uh, General uh, Francois de Kellerman who is an, a Saxon uh, general who uh, I guess is, is, lives in Paris, but his name is Francois, so I don't know. But Kellerman is such not a French name, so yeah, I, think, I think he's a Saxon. Uh, Kellerman um, 
is known to have taken off his hat at this moment, at whatever moment, this, this is mythologized, of course, a little bit, but there is a sort of moment or a preceding series of moments that occur in which the uh, French general, Francois de Kellerman, takes off his hat and says, vive la nation, and ch- a chant begins, vive la nation, vive la nation. And so all of the uh, soldiers are beginning to chant this big chant. Right. And at the same time, we don't know why, it's not because of the chant. It's, t- it's too good to believe. Not because of the chant, but we know why. We don't know why. The Brunswickian army, so specifically the Brunswickian unit, which was, yeah. w- which was under the control of, obviously, the, the head duke, but sort yeah. of the Brunswickian people uh, and Brunswickian generals, they retire. And they leave. Oh. They leave okay, the field. Shit. They don't explain why. Everybody is surprised. We still don't know to this day what the what the reason for the recall was. We still have what no the idea. Fuck? Okay, we have no clue. People have different theories on it, and I'll tell you them in a second. This precipitated a retreat of the entire invading force over a period of several hours. Eventually, the Brunswickians leave, and then the, Pari- the, the, the the I want to call them Parisians. The Prussians leave eventually, and then at least strands just the Austrians, and eventually the Austrians leave. Why? It's not known why the Duke of Brunswick orders the withdrawal. It that could be. Crazy. It could be a highly defensible French position, which was detailed both by French and Austrian-Prussian soldiers in accounts. Right. They said it was a good position that the French had. Yeah. The uh, supply okay. and manpower train, which was coming from Paris, was continuous. And the Duke of right. Brunswick notes this. He says he notices how, when he's looking from Paris, you know, the road that leads to where they are from Paris is a constant stream of people. Holy shit. Willing to participate, not necessarily in the battle, but in the supply train. If you know anything about warfare at all, especially during this period of time and really all previous periods of warfare, not today so much, but all previous periods of warfare where you had to have guys line up and fight in in legions or in gunnery units, the supply train is probably five or six times larger. So it's all of the soldiers' families. Remember, in this time period, if you were a soldier, your whole family traveled, you know? So you, you, this is like a supply chain, massive. So it's a huge amount of people in which many Sanculot are as well. Right. So proven fighters. And yeah. the Duke of Brunswick notes this and says, look, I, I, it, it was, there was a lot of things going on. But there's also <laughs> a theory, which is not substantiated by any physical proof, but is a reasonable thing to assume, is that Louis cautioned the Duke to retreat instead of... Um, attacking and beating the army because he realized that after the Paris massacres, what if they storm the Tuileries directly and just kill me before they descend on Paris? Holy shit. Yeah. So it's reasonable to think that Louis eventually came to the conclusion, seeing what the population was capable of doing by storming the prisons and things Mm -hmm. like that, that he was next. Yeah. So he basically, there could be any number of reasons why the, the retreat happens, but regardless the city is saved and the invasion yeah. force is halted and Paris basically ceases its panic. And this is the end. That, that's the end of the story. That is yeah, how the National Assembly becomes the government of France. Basic, yes. more or less. It yeah. is just like the same way that in the US, we became, uh, or rather our government became the government of the country that we declared um, when the British left. They said, we can't do this anymore. We don't want to do this. It's too expensive. Yeah. Same thing. Same thing basically happens. So next up comes the terror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is yes. amazing. We just finished. We just finished talking <laughs> oh, about yeah. that. 
And that is essentially the whole story of the French Revolution. I mean, the French Constitutional Revolution. And now yes. we get into the period of the French Revolution. Now, yeah. I think there's an emphasis on the word revolution here because later Napoleon comes into the picture and this idea of evangelical liberation it comes back in the form of Napoleon. Yes. And so when I emphasize the word revolution, I mean to say the French started becoming the ones who were making revolutions happen everywhere else. Holy shit. So right. it moves from a constitutional revolution in France to the French being responsible for all of the revolutions everywhere else. So that's why I think it's good to call it revolutionary France because every other country yeah, in Europe yeah. looks at them like, oh, that's a revolutionary thing, right? Like, like they, it's more yes, of the exactly. notion of how new it is. So anyway, yeah. the terrors begin. Um, the, 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 what are they actually called? The, uh, just the terror. It's just called the terror, right? It's not yeah. called the French terror or the no, revolutionary just the terror. terror. The terror. All right. So the terror begins in 73 and continues into, uh, sorry, begins in 1793 and ends in 1794. Yeah. Uh, I um, have a quick note before this. Mm -hmm. So in October 1792, mm -hmm. uh, the new legislative assembly also fails. And the, oh, the new... Okay. Uh, National Assembly is said. Oh, and is that the assembly that, that then legislates the terror? So the original yes. one fails, and the Jacobins, I guess, must be the yeah, ones who take, take power. power. And yeah. the Jacobins are the ones who institute the terror. Actually, that's important here, is that while the Girondin, who used to be in control of the National Assembly, the, what they ended up being responsible for was these armies descending on France and causing mass panic and death and the prison purges, the Jacobin are responsible for the terrors. Yes. So they're both responsible for mass death, but just differently. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> Neither uh, of these groups are good, I will say. I do, happen, <laughs> I do happen to think that the American revolutionaries were the good guy. Like, I think there is a clear good and bad guy in that situation. In this situation, there is not really as much of a good and bad guy. It's, 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 it's like they're not fighting for freedom. They're fighting for... France. Pretty it's just much. a different, yeah. it's just a weird, different notion. And there's no reason why they have to be better or worse. It just happens to be that way. Oh, that yeah. They turn this, like there's, there's no American terror. The closest thing that you could say to the, to an American terror happening was the whiskey rebellion, which happens in the U S right after um, the country is established. George Washington has to go into, I forget what state it's in, but basically they won't pay whiskey tax. Right. And they said, yeah. we're not paying whiskey tax. And George Washington says, well, I'm going to send the military in and you're going to have to pay the tax. So that's the closest thing we have to a terror. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but let, do you want to – actually, let me give you uh, – I don't know if I can – I'll give you George Denton's quote. Um, so right. George Dent, or George Denton, because he's a Frenchman, George Denton has a quote about um, – it's called – it's a quote about harsh behavior – uh, right. Give me one second to make sure that I can Google the right thing. All right, I'll, um, I'll just uh, put in my own quote here real quick. Mm -hmm, go ahead. Googling. Um, so I don't know the exact historian, but uh, one historian on the wiki had a pretty good quote. Um, he says, uh, in the attempt to govern, the assembly failed altogether. It left behind oh. an empty treasury, an undisciplined army and navy, and the people debauched by a safe and successful riot. Um, or, as one Dutch historian put it, um, the French assembly failed due to it being French. <laughs> it, in, a, in, a, in a way, it, it did. 
Um, and, and part of that actually kind of goes into my quote, which Perfect. it is true. And, and no, it is literally French. And in some senses, it's literally French because the Jacobins are a new thing, right? Oh, like yeah. the, in, in history, the Jacobins are a new thing. They're proto-socialist, um, but like Lenin socialists, not like Mao. Like they weren't peasant <laughs> socialists. These were no. like wealthy and educated oh, men. Yeah. So it's interesting. Therefore, so here's kind of to further the idea of what, why the National Assembly fails and it becomes uh, a terror, is a quote from uh, Georges Danton. Oh, not Denton, Danton. Okay. Uh, quote, and this is him explaining, okay, well, the reason why I said that the terrors begin in 70, uh, uh, 1793 and 1794, you'll note if you Google it that Wikipedia will not say that. It will say a later date. However, um, what I believe and what the lecturer believes, and I think he convinced me of this, is that the institutions of terror, which the terror uses to promote its terror are found in seven in 1793 and 1794. Why? Yeah, well, so Denton is talking in the quote I'm about to give you, he's citing, or rather he was asked a question about the September massacre. Right. So what he says is to free the people of the necessity of harsh deeds, we must ourselves be harsh. Uh-huh. So basically Denton is saying that the laws that are created, which institute the terror well they're there so that individual people don't have to do it Mm -hmm. because we saw what happened in september where individual people took into their own hands this kind of justice and two thousand people died how about we simply institutionalize that urge and so less normal people have to partake in it so it's a weird it's a weird justification that of course it doesn't hold up in what we know today but but it might have been a reasonable yeah, in a in in, in it might have been a reasonable suggestion at the time yeah. to a lot of people. Yeah. Um. So anyway, what what is the what is the terror, right? What does it look like? Just well, a, a yeah, real quick second. Uh, I have a uh, or a few notes. Um. So just a, a quick uh glossary of a, a few reasons the assembly kind of failed. Yeah. Go so ahead. uh, one, the king did not cooperate. He was yeah. stolen. Um. Two, um, a lot of the anti-religious uh, uh, shit just really offended the pious and the peasants because the peasants were also still Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. The ten week um, was or the ten day week met a lot of resistance uh, because the French, being French, um, were really opposed to the idea of having a few more or a few less uh, off days in the year because apparently um, the first day of the week was like a more or less religious. Uh, national off day um, so the 10 day week limited that to like 34 um, well the economy was still up shit's creek um, because the French invented hyperinflation um, now, they, is, that, is that true? I mean like didn't the Dutch? Uh, possibly um, oh wait but, no the tulip the tulip, revol- the tulip uh, had nothing to do with inflation right? that no. was inflation okay alright fine hey anything I can do to <laughs> <laughs> um that is true, though. The French do experience hyperinflation probably before yeah. anyone else. Yeah. I think they might actually invent it because this is, remember, still around the time um, that uh, the, the printing press is kind of a new thing. So right. what they do, um, in the, with the thought that maybe this will help the economy, is they just print more money. Right. They just keep on printing money. Right. Um, and Which, which I don't even know whether or not there was a gold standard for France. Like, I don't know how their economy even worked. I don't know if they could have printed more money if they just had to borrow it. I don't even know how it worked. Well, I mean, they had uh, 
recently, I think, invented or, or put into work paper money. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, this was new. Mm. Um, like, it used to be just coins, right? Coins, yeah, yeah. Because um, actually, in my notes, it makes... Oh, one of the things that uh, the professor said in his lecture about one of the reasons why they were caught along the road to Varennes when they were fleeing was because Louis' face is on every coin. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, so they were still using coin coinage at the time, but maybe they were also using the paper currency, yeah. which no doubt he would have been on if, if there was... The Republic might have instituted paper currency rather than the king, who probably had a more distinct interest in the gold currency anyway. But who yes. knows? Um, so anyway, um, where was I? Uh, yeah, so um, just more money printing uh, causes hyperinflation. Um, then there's a problem that uh, rural peasants were still taxed to shit. Um, mm. Like the situation didn't change much for them. They just paid taxes to someone else now. Um, also, the working poor really hated that rich landowners had just kind of taken all the wealth um, and, well, foreign powers threatened to invade and invaded. Um, so the French uh, responded with extremism and systematic violence. Um, mm. Let's see. Yeah, so in the September massacres, uh, I even have a number of 3,000 people uh, are murdered, many of whom Catholic clergy. Um, yeah, nuns, mostly nuns. Yes, yes. Um, and then a more general note, uh, between 92 and 1815, the French are almost constantly at war with the Anglo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, almost almost constantly. Yes. Um, so from there on, I think January 21st, 1793 is the next very important date. Uh, what date? January 21st, uh, 93. I actually don't have any more months left. I only have years now. So let me, I do have uh, some things to say about the revolution. Okay, go ahead. Or the, the, the uh, terror. Yes. Um, so how did it look? Well, revolutionary tribunals were set up. So a tribunal is basically a military trial, um, yes. uh, which, it, which was meant to try all political-related cases, including accusations of treason. The Committee of General Security was also established, and it was responsible for investigating subversive or treasonous behavior, and then it would funnel those cases, whether or not it found anything, to the tribunals, who would then prosecute the cases. Citizens were encouraged to air their suspicions to their local community boards, which would then uh, investigate yes. cases and refer to them to the tribunal, like I said, uh, and so basically that kind of condition helps to exacerbate the terror. This idea that the government is now telling you to rat on your neighbor. If you think that they're subversive or working with the royalty, um, the conditions that lead to the terror go back to the earliest days of revolution. Uh, when this dynamic was first born, which is to say the dynamic between the Royals anti-subversive behavior and popular insurrection. That happens to be the cycle. Every time the population does something, the royalty responds with anti-subversive behavior, which means they revolt, which means they respond, which blah, 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 blah. And in fact, what's really interesting is Hegel and then Karl Marx, they use that dynamic to explain their theory of history so far as to say, at least in Marx's case, it's material. In Hegel's case, it's ideal to say when one event occurs, there is a reaction which occurs, which leads to a new situation of both reactions and actions in the first place. And this is kind of where they get that idea from, because it's a very, if you actually look into the history of it, it's very interesting how the French Revolution works in cycles of oh, yeah. the, the, the state, the state and nobility do one thing, although I don't think you can call Louis the state, even though he no, says he is, but he's not really. Um, but the cycle of nobility versus... Uh, uh, peasantry and insurrection just 
really does inform a lot of how you want to look at this. So doubt and mistrust and subversion, uh, they were all prevented. Uh, well, rather, doubt and mistrust and subversion were things which pre- prevented the revolution's institutionalization. So as a result, they needed to stop doubt, mistrust, and subversion. Mm-hmm. So they institute these, these, these terror bodies in order to right. deal with this. So the contradiction, of course, being that the aims of the revolution uh, were seemingly now different from the way in which those means were being achieved, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You went from, well, we have to, the rights of declaration of man and citizen was just a few years ago when it yeah. was, and now you think about what's going on in the terror of where we have to do harsh things. So yes. <laughs> the average person doesn't have to do harsh things. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so Marat, who is another politician and a supporter of, uh, a Jacobin, by the way, right. who is also a supporter of um, permanent revolution, describes the Sankulo and the need to organize a group like the Sankulo into a brief despotism of liberty, he calls it. The hell? Or, well, well, the actual full quote is, there is a need to organize a brief despotism of liberty in order to crush the despotism of kings. So it's, it's, it's again, another reasonable idea, and you've, you'll hear it a lot later. A man named Wedmeyer, who was a German who moved to the U.S. to fight in the uh, Civil War as a general. He was a Prussian, I believe, or a Saxon general who comes to the U.S., to fight uh, in the Civil War, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, he, and I forget his first name, but Weedmeyer is his last name. He's a direct affiliate of Karl Marx. Holy and shit. he gives Karl Marx the idea for the term. In fact, Wedmeyer coins the term dictatorship of the proletariat. Holy shit. So Marx looks back at the French Revolution and says a brief despotism of liberty. Well, that's the same thing. The dictatorship of the proletariat. The Sanculot were his proletariat. They were the, the despots in this case. They were the, the, they were the ones who were instituting liberty. You know, they yeah. were the ones who were instituting this new kind of France. So Marx takes that. Now, Hal Draper, who's a historian of Karl Marx, writes that the Girondin specifically denounced the National Assembly as a dictatorship. Holy and he shit. sketched, uh, um, well, he, Hal, Hal Draper uh, notes that the Girondins do this when he's sketching Marx's meaning of the use of the term dictatorship. So uh, a, a storied historian of Marx claims that the kind of thing we saw during the terror in the National Assembly is the kind of dictatorship that Marx was looking at as a way to institute communism. Now, that, I'm not trying to say that in a biased way to say Karl Marx liked violent revolutions as a way of instituting his means. <laughs> what I mean to say is the dictatorship of the proletariat in its ideal sense is what the San Culo were doing in their vigilante justice. Right. However, it wasn't necessarily class-based. Like the San Culo weren't looking at one another like, we support the San Culo and only the San Culo. They just right. kind of wanted to keep order so that the constitution could be passed and, and yeah. things like that. But basically that's what Marx's envisionment of the revolutionary period was going to be. Not the terror, but the idea that led up to the terror, this dictatorship of the proletariat kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Again, I don't want to be super biased about it, even though I am not a fan of Marx or his particular conception of socialism or communism, but that's what he sees. That's how he believes is the most effective way of doing it. And Lenin does too. And that's what happens during the red, the, 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 te- the terror in, I forget what that one's called. It might be called the Red Terror or the October Revolution or something like that. But that's oh, basically what Lenin so does. Yeah. Lenin starts purging people from the government and society in the, very much the same way. The bourgeoisie, the petite bourgeoisie, people like that. So that's the same thing happening here 
if you want to think about it as far as history doesn't yeah. really change much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So between 1793 and 1794, France was beset from all sides by opposition, I, um, like you said. Yeah, I have a quick note to add here, uh, because I think you're missing something rather important. Okay. Um, as I said, January 23rd, uh, 1793, um, oh. citizen Louis Capet is executed by guillotine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, citizen Louis Capet, Capet is, is a, another uh, famous dynasty. Formerly known... Yeah. As uh, King Louis the Sixteenth. Yes. Yes. Um, so. Oh, duh. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Capet. Oh, so he's a member of the House of Capet. So he's not a member of the House of Bourbon. He's a member of the House of Capet. Wow. So there's a lot of royal families that got fucked over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so I'd say that's um, uh, kind of. I mean, that's not really the the thing that kicks it off, but it's kind of a, a, a pretty decent place to. Uh, to mark essentially where the terror kicks off. Oh, that specific moment? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe it's the, the moment that marks uh, the failure to establish um, a, a constitutional monarchy above all. I mean, there's no bigger failure to establish a, a constitutional monarchy than oh, yes, the king. Yes, then, then literally getting rid of... Well, I guess it would be dissolving the royal house. Because you could behead yeah. your king and maybe one of his heirs could take yeah, up. But they were, they were straight up like, we're not doing yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, here turns the tide. Yes. So between 1793 and 1794, Francis beset from all sides from opposition and was torn internally by dissidents who opposed the rule of the National Assembly. Yes. So the National Assembly begins to mobilize the nation into finding enemies at home and abroad. As we said before, the reasoning being this is a unifying uh, force, proved to be a unifying force in repelling uh, the Habsburgs, and it will continue to prove to be a unifying force again. The trial and execution of Louis and Marie occur. Uh, which leads to the guillotine becoming a brutal tool and symbol of the revolutions. Yes. Uh, it was interesting because uh, it was noted that it, it kind of promises swift death to traitors and enemies of France, right? Obviously mm. in the form of just kills yes. you instantly, right? But also symbolically, it promised a swift death to the crises in France as a whole. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So by the summer of uh, 1794, French uh, forces basically secure the national frontier and also finally settle internal opposition and the preparations to end the terror and dissolve the committee of public safety begin. They finally do it uh, and they're doing it. And this is where a distinct change happens. So now we're not going to be talking about the French revolution, uh, the French constitutional revolution at any point anymore, because once the terror dissipates, a single character comes into play oh, yeah. who is so Just, um, culturally, socially significant that, pe- that, that Immanuel Kant talks of him as if he is all of Europe. He speaks yeah. of him as if he's the entirety of the European mind. So before we get into that famous character, anything uh, you want to add? Yeah, just a, a few numbers. Um, just to, to give you a bit of a grip on how uh, Oh, yes, that's true. I didn't, I didn't record the terror at all. Yeah, how, tell me about the statistics from the terror. Well, um, prepare your anus. Um, so I'm sure it's nuts. It's oh, you know what? While 70- you do that, I'm going to get a comparison of the, Rus- the later Russian terror. Ah, yeah. just, go ahead. Yeah, so... Um, like a, a number we have a, a good estimate on is about 17,000 people uh, die under the guillotine. Holy shit. I was going to say the Red Terror pisses all over that number already. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably. Um, another 40,000 people um, <clears throat> die being executed, uh, well, without trial or otherwise awaiting trial. 
Um, so, I mean, this is execution, but also just kind of dying of starvation in jail. Mm. Um, tens of thousands more are killed in rebellions and civil wars. Um, there's a story of uh, some guy literally drowning thousands of people in a river, just tying stones to their legs and just... The women, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a very famous and sad moment in Catholic history is that he, taught, he took boulders and tied them to the legs of nuns. It was only right. nuns. And then yes. he threw them into the river where they all drowned to death. Just yes. nuns. It was very... And that, again, that's a consequence of the enlightenment aspect of this. You can't have people like you know, priests and, and nuns. They're, they're yes, not, you know, exactly. we're changing the calendar here. We can't oh, yeah. have churches. It's amazing that any churches in France survived. It's amazing that Notre Dame actually survived. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I have no idea how that happened. But uh, No, and anyway, let me give you some just <laughs> the Red Terror uh, later. Yeah. The Red Terror is, and again, this is 120 or so years later, and this mm-hmm. is Russia. So, you know, first of all, Russia's got a bigger population and in Russia, people die like flies. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So the initial repression period of the Red Terror, mm-hmm. 10,000 dead, the total number of victims from every campaign that results from the Red Terror up to 1.3 million. Wow. Okay. Which gives an estimate of 28,000 executions per day between 1917 and 1922. So again, Lenin, and I, again, I don't even mean to say this to shit all over Lenin, but it is just simply a fact that Lenin looks at this era of history as a strategy book. Just, it's just a fact. Yeah. And he's not the only person to do it. Purges occur all throughout history. But Lenin was a representative of the Russian people, I say, with some air quotes, because it really <laughs> was true for a little while, and a lot of Russians would have told you that for a little while. Um, so I don't know. It's very strange. But yeah, that's whenever these terrors happen, you always get these insane numbers. Oh, yeah. Insane numbers of dead. But let's talk about, um, let's go away from terror and let's talk about liberation. Uh, maybe. Let's stay with the terror for just a okay. tiny bit. Keep going. Keep terrorizing. Um, <laughs> because another uh, thing that happens during this terror is um, the cult of reason is yes. uh, founded. Yeah. Um, yep. And the cult of reason doesn't last very long, or at least it's transformed pretty quickly into the cult of the supreme being. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a lot of other information on it. Um, I think it was created. I think um, what's interesting is that organization. What I do know about it is that when it becomes the cult of the supreme being, yeah. or rather, um, the supreme be- oh yes, yes, sorry. So the cult of the supreme being. Uh, yes. Okay. So, sorry. Uh, the cult of the supreme. The cult of the supreme being. I had to look it up just to be sure. But Robespierre creates that. Yes. Yeah. So, but he creates it in opposition to. Does he not? Does he not create it in opposition to the original that original cult? To the cult of reason. I'm not sure. Um, might be. Yeah, after holding, okay, just what the Wikipedia says. After holding sway for a year, it was officially replaced by the rival cult of the Supreme Being, which was Ah, promoted by Robespierre. I guess Robespierre was religious. Yes, but not quite. But no, no, well, well, it is a religion. It's just not. It is a religion, but it wasn't marketed as a religion. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't marketed as as enlightenment. Yeah, it's (laughs) very strange. It's it's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. That's what you get with French. Um, yeah. What can you tell me about Robespierre's um, responsibility in this? Anything? Did you look anything into him specifically? Because I know uh, of a lot of, he committed a lot of horrible things, but I didn't take note of any of them in particular because we're talking more about kind of the constitutional history here. It's um, a bit uh, weird because 
uh, Robespierre is not originally the leader of the Jacobins. Um, or the terror. Or the terror, even. I mean, uh, I believe he is the, um, like, by the end of the terror, he's pretty much, um, he is officially at least the boss of the Jacobin party. But And I was going to say, I, realistically, I at some point, you know, spoiler alert, but they kill him. So yes. Yeah, he's I, also guillotined. Know, <laughs> yeah, sorry, again, spoiler alert, but he's guillotined yeah. before yeah. the end of the terror. Uh, or, 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 doesn't his uh his have been the end the of the terror? terror yes yes i would yeah. say that which is 94 yeah 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 oh as yeah. A, and re- the resulting thermidorian reaction i don't know what that is i didn't look into that that's me neither okay. um Hold on. but so, um are we going to talk about when we talk about robespierre being killed <laughs> <laughs> anyway um so he has a he has a right hand man mm. uh thomas de saint-jus or mm. thomas de saint-just um, and I don't know from what little I've seen, uh, this guy might, uh, he's at least a very big influence on Robespierre, mm. um, almost, uh, to the extent that, um, uh, Robespierre is kind of the Saint-Jus puppet. Mm-hmm. Like he's, so while Robespierre kind of officially makes the decisions, uh, Oh, it's, it's more coming from some, uh, gray eminence kind of figure yeah, yeah, kind hidden of. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, do you have a lot of information on the uh, execution of uh, Robespierre? Because there's I uh, no, but I can read the wiki- I, I can read the Wikipedia. It's open source, so um, why not? From what I remember from reading the wiki, is uh, the way it went with Robespierre um, is at some point uh, like there's uh, some list spread with people that Robespierre oh, suspects oh, of... Yes, the law of 22, something like that, or something like uh, that, yeah. Maybe. Um, of, of people like Robespierre considered counter-revolutionaries and is planning to execute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of undermines his authority within the party already. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at some point, and this really marked the end uh, of his, um, his reign within the party, I guess, um, Robespierre... Uh, like when he enters the, the Senate or the Assembly, one of his colleagues just tells him or asks him, like, Robespierre, will you tell us to our face who you intend to send to the guillotine next? Who of us? Oh, uh, can I act? I was going to say, can I actually mention something? Yeah. Uh, very, uh, that is of a lot of importance. There's one group here who we have neglected to talk about and who I kind of completely ne- neglected to talk about. Yeah. But there's an extremist group in the government called the Montagnards. Yeah. And the Montagnards, he actually, Robespierre heads the Montagnards at the end of the terror. So ah, Robespierre okay. leaves the Jacobins and joins the Montagnards, which are a more extreme leftist group. Yeah. So anyway, just to say, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I believe in that session, nothing much happens. Um, and then in the next session, the entire assembly just kind of goes an open revolt uh, against Robespierre. Uh, there's yeah, um, right. a quote I read, I think, on the Wikipedia as well somewhere, that by the end of the session, um, Robespierre's like, last words of that session are just, uh, he's, his voice is completely broken from all the yelling and screaming uh, like between the two parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's asking for permission to speak, mm-hmm. which is, of course, massive if you consider uh, the power he had just like oh, yeah. days mm-hmm. before this. Right. Right. Um, and then not long after that, he sent to the guillotine, which marked the official end of uh, uh, of the terror. Right, because they started purging all kinds of 
people. They started oh, yeah. purging pretty much everybody. I mean, that is but, the official end of it. But uh, at that point, uh, the Girondins come back with a vengeance. And yes, they just they do. Well, I'll get to that. I will get to that. Because there's okay, a thing, perfect. The, the Thermidorian reaction, which I, yeah. I didn't look into, but I just briefly read it. It's, it's pretty simple to seem, seemingly to explain. So first of all, why is it called the Thermidorian reaction? Thermidor 2, or July 27th, 9 Thermidor 2, July 27th of 1794. So I guess Thermidor 1 would be 1793. Okay, so Thermidor is a month in the French Republican calendar. Right. So the reason why it's called the Thermidorian reaction is because it occurs in the month of Thermidor. Right. Um, in their calendar, which happens to be near July. So uh, the Thermidorian reaction, this is what it says in the Wikipedia, was named after the month in which the coup took place and was the latter part of the National Convention's rule of France. It marked the end of the reign of terror, decentralization of the executive powers of the Committee of Public Safety, and a turn from the radical leftist policies of the Montagnard Convention to the more conservative position. Economic and general populism, dechristianization, and harsh wintertime measures were largely abandoned, and the members of the convention, disillusioned and frightened of the centralized government of the terror, preferred a more stable political order that would have the approval of the affluent. The reaction saw the left suppressed by brutal force, including massacres, as well as the disbanding of the Jacobin Club, the dispersal of the Saint-Coulot, and the renunciation of the Montagnard ideology. So yes, like you say, the reactionary response, uh, the Girondin place on the rest of the government is, is known as the Thermidorian reaction, right. which is the Thermidorian reaction in France is also called the Great Terror. Uh-huh. Um, so basically, another <laughs> period of terror occurs, yep. <laughs> except it's a, a right-wing period of terror, which kind of works to, after they kill Robespierre, it kills the ideology of leftism as far as how, how its influence at the time in France. Yep. The Saint-Coulot start to disperse, and this is sort of a beginning of a period of normalcy. Now, that is the sort of French Republic that you know of. I have a brief section on Napoleon, which we have to get to if we're yes. ever going to talk about, you know, revolutionary France, the sort of oh, yeah. nation building part that France became. Yes. So I have, um, uh, let, uh, I have a few minor things, uh, and then we can get on to Napoleon. Um, okay. Yeah. I will. S- so by the summer of 1794, French forces secure the border and internal opposition and preparations to end the terror begin. Okay, yeah. So the ending of the terror to the moment when uh, Napoleon uh, enters Italy. That's what I have. Okay. Which will uh, be the ni- tw- uh, 1795. Yeah. Uh, 1795 is also what I have. I have some more uh, internal, I guess. Oh, I guess in 1795, in your relevant case, the Habsburgs are driven out of the Netherlands by Napoleon. Uh, and the Batavian Republic is established in 1795. Um, that's very interesting, but that's not what I had. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, with this new round of killing, uh, a new constitution is also implemented. Oh, uh, okay. All right, you mentioned all the constitutions. That's right. Yeah, no, we haven't mentioned all of those, but we've burned through like five constitutions. I was going to say, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, by the, by the way, since we've been talking about six of the constitutions <laughs> have been drafted already in the period of history we've been discussing. <laughs> it was a um, mess. It's absolutely fucking horrible. Um, but another thing that happens is that the lower classes are still ignored. Um, like, this is still very much uh, a revolution of the rich, essentially. Um, so, uh, well, they stormed the National Convention. This ends up in some more being, people being executed and the lower classes being uh, further ignored. Um, then, I guess, the period from then to 99 you can get into. But I just have to quick note that the government is revised some more. The poor continue to starve and the state 
continue to depend on war. Yeah, more or less at this point, I um, have shifted my focus away from uh, the government, the internal yeah. government of France. Because to me, if we're talking about the revolutionary period, it, it is really strange, but I actually agree with a lot of philosophers that, that Napoleon becomes France, that the, the revolutionary spirit of France becomes Napoleon. Napoleon yeah. and is it. Like, like he stands as the person who represents it and he's the only person who really has the power to drive it forward. The government at this point of France sinks back, lets Napoleon do his thing, mm-hmm. and that's kind of why they get overtaken soon too. Um, yeah. Because just like, you know, the Roman Republic allowed Caesar to gain so much military and personal favor by allowing him to go into Gaul, and conquering Gaul, allowing him to go into Britain and conquering Britain, allowing him to go down into Spain and conquering Spain. And he did all this in the span of two decades, maybe. And the government should have a long time ago said, stop, (laughs) because (laughs) you're getting too popular. But they didn't. And the same thing happens with Napoleon, except in less time, because Napoleon is 27. Jesus. He's 27 years old when he enters Italy. So, Uh, 35 as well, right? Uh, that's 95. Yes. So at yeah, the same okay. time that the Habsburgers are driven out of the Netherlands and the Batavian Re- Republic is established by Napoleon, he turns around and enters Italy. So, um, the revolutionary militarizes as French forces push into the low countries, which is the Netherlands and yeah. Belgium and, and the like. Uh, oh yeah. And Luxembourg. Yeah, um, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it might've been more countries at the time though. It was certainly, well, regardless, it's that area now. Yeah. So, as they enter the low countries, they, they don't stop. They continue to behave in that evangelical spirit of revolution that right. they had before. They become an army, of, an army of liberation. They stop really being the army of France and they start becoming the army of the people of Europe in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the revolution militarizes and this is the span of things that occurs. So Napoleon Bonaparte, a 2017-year-old general, leads his army into Austria and Italy and swiftly breaks Austria's grasp on Italy, creating several new republics out of that area. The centuries now, – now there's contradictions here because in doing this, Napoleon topples some because, as you know, uh, the Italian peninsula and the area around it is uniquely um, one of the only places in Europe that had old republics. These republics existed for long periods of time. So there's contradictions here in what Napoleon does. But the centuries-old Venetian Republic, which again, I mean, the Venetian Republic, as far as I remember, it exists in the 1300s. We're talking about the 1800s. So this is a really old republic. Uh, Napoleon dismantles it. He destroys it. He recreates a new republic called the Cisalpine Republic, which consists of the cities of Milan, Modena, Ferrara, Venetia, and Bologna. So that's it. So he, he creates that. Now, Genoa, another old republic, oh, yeah. he destroys and recreates into the Ligurian Republic. This is 1797. Same year, he creates the Cisalpine Republic. Mm-hmm. So the Swiss republics, which were long established, were also overrun. And they were unified to create a single Helvetic Republic in 1797. <laughs> Same year. In the next year... The Roman Republic was created when Napoleon enters Rome, takes it away from the papacy. Holy shit. Republic that's created. The Kingdom of Naples is replaced. So that's the southern half of the boot of Italy is controlled. Yeah, pretty much. The northern half of the boot of Italy was controlled before that by the Venetian Republic and the Papal States. But all of these things are dismantled completely. So uh, the last thing is uh, he dismantles the Kingdom of Naples and replaces it with the 
Parthopenean Republic in 1799. Uh-huh. So again, the fascination with the Greco-Roman antiquity, the names, uh, uh, it all comes from Greco-Roman antiquity and Napoleon's philosophy. Again, I say this, uh, it deserves its own episode. It's very fascinating the way oh, he yeah. thinks and the way he prefigures, like kind of prefigures himself into like an image of Julius Caesar is very, very interesting. So these republics that he creates, are they become known as uh, sister republics, but they're only really sister republics in a very superficial sense. They have, they did make promise on liberation. Like the promise that the French were making of liberation was true in a sense. Mm-hmm. And yet in reality, the republics only had limited autonomy. Uh, so in order to preserve Republican governments and ensure smooth operations, basically the key figures in all of these republics were just French officials. So this is kind of like you can picture it also in, in, in liken it to the people's democracies that orbit around the Soviet Union, that they have more power than they did before when they were either under fascist governments or monarchies, but they're still completely subservient to the Soviet Union and yeah. only become more subservient, and you'll see how. So the sister republics were pretty much beholden to France, and they were expected to yield wealth for their liberation. So this came at a price. In June 1796, for example, which is actually before any of these, most of these republics uh, come in, uh, in fact, actually to create the Cisalpine Republic out of certain cities, the cities of Bologna and uh, Ferrara, uh, Napoleon says he extracts 4 million livres from the cities, uh, which is a huge amount of money. yeah. You want to look at the time. Um, in 96, Napoleon, no, sorry. So in 96, Napoleon writes, he does that same year. He, when he uh, goes into Rome, he sacks a lot of the papal art out of the, um, out of the, well, out of the Pope's collection of art. He sacks a lot of it and puts it in the Louvre. Uh, the flow of resources basically moves from conquered provinces to Paris. I mean, that's more or less how it is. And look, well, and, and the professor mentions this because this is important. While it is cynical, it, the cynical look, which is to say that evangelical urge of liberation was just a cynical urge to conquer Europe, that really wasn't the case for most people at the time. They really believed it. They really genuinely believed in getting rid of monarchies, kicking out monarchies, yeah. and establishing republics because in a way, it is a more representative form of government than a monarchy, as, as has been proven in France, yes. more or less. I mean, yes. this is why all of the monarchies, especially the Prussian monarch, all of the monarchies start to get very nervous when this happens, because it's true. The monarchies for a long time kind of skated over and taxed to death uh, a lot of these, these peoples. Now, they didn't know that the republics were going to end up doing the same thing. They were just uh. promised something new, which for a little while actually looked different. So really, there were a lot of enthusiastic European supporters to this French Republican mission of conquering the whole of Europe and reestablishing it. I mean, let's be honest here. Germany was created by Napoleon. Pretty Prussia much, yeah. Destroyed. Uh, uh, the Holy Roman Empire was completely dismantled uh, yep. under Napoleon. I believe Napoleon dismantles it in the year 1800. Like symbolically, yeah. Symbolically, I believe he dismantles it a thousand years after it was created. Exactly. Oh, I think, wow. I think that's exactly the case. So, you know, he, there really was a mission going on that people believed in. So Napoleon, here's the difference now. Here's where the turn comes. And this is kind of where we have to leave it because I don't have any more research All on right. this. But this is where we kind of have to leave it because the story completely changes, not because I don't have more info. Yeah. Um, Napoleon seizes power in 1799. Yes. He takes control of the National Assembly. He declares himself first consul, yes. which, which, of course, is a, a nod to the Roman Republic. He later declares himself consul for life, which ah. is not a nod to the Roman Republic. <laughs> because 
because that's not what Caesar did. Caesar declared permanent dictatorship. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah. Caesar openly declares permanent dictatorship, which the Roman people are okay with because dictatorship was what was needed at the time because the Roman Republic was completely insufficient at, at dealing with the problem of people invading. But anyway, so what, what Napoleon does is he kind of recreates that idea in Consul for Life. So he calls himself Consul for Life. So Immanuel Kant, famous philosopher, I mean, one of the most famous philosophers in history who pretty much philosophy up until his time, well, rather philosophy for a very long time, maybe even up until Hegel, uh, and then from Hegel until Marx, uh, everyone was responding to Kant. Everybody had a thing to say about Kant. So this is a huge name in Europe. Uh, Kant believes that Napoleon is a single man who represents the entirety of Europe's enlightenment, that this conquering, uh, that this return to the values of the Roman Republic, to civility, to things like this, to good rule, uh, away from Christianity and things like that. Uh, Immanuel Kant believes that Napoleon is the physical embodiment of that, not the representation, but the man who was completely responsible for the enlightenments uh, uh, spread through Europe. And a man who was defined as the Enlightenment, literally embodied it. it yeah. you know, hard to understand, but a lot of people believe this. Hegel believes this as well. Thomas Carlyle also believes it, who's oh, a sure. famous yeah. historian and one of the fathers of, I would say, fascism, Thomas Carlyle, who's an author. Uh, he also believes that Napoleon is this, I, this sort of representation of the Enlightenment. And it goes so far as to convince Carlyle, uh, Carlyle of creating the great man theory, which is throughout history, history is only determined by the actions of a few great men. I'm sure you've heard that famous quote before. Yes. That's Thomas Carlyle. That uh-huh. comes from looking at Napoleon as the embodiment of the Enlightenment, as Holy the shit. embodiment of change. So yeah, that all comes from, from Napoleon. So Napoleon sees his power in 1799. Not everybody was a huge fan of it, like Immanuel Kant was, uh, Beethoven, a German who huh. saw what Napoleon was responsible for doing to Germany, uh, was an ardent supporter of Napoleon for a long time until, okay. until, because what Napoleon did for Germany was good, not bad. It was yeah. good. He liberated the Germans in a sense. He liberated the Jews. That's a very important thing that we need to give Napoleon credit for is before Napoleon there was no Jewish emancipation in Europe anywhere. Napoleon proclaims throughout Europe emancipation of the Jews, meaning that Jews are allowed to be in government. Well, this was a slow process, but the emancipation essentially grants them full citizenship. Think about it that way. So that was Napoleon who did this. Now, Beethoven, who's not a Jew, but I think it's very important to mention that Napoleon did a lot of good things in this yeah. sort of traveling through Europe, conquering and defeating king's armies and stuff. Sure. This is not the same sort of nation building we see today. It's different. Yeah. Anyway. Clearly. Beethoven, who used to be a famous supporter of him, when he declares himself uh, the, the, the first consul, taking the emperorship, uh, Beethoven, who dedicated his third symphony to Napoleon, goes and manically runs and tears his hair out and runs through his personal collection of manuscripts and rips Napoleon's name off of all of his manuscripts Holy dedicated shit. to him. Huge. It's a huge and well-told story that I don't know whether or not Napoleon knew about it, but I'm sure he would have been happy to hear that. Yeah, I don't um, think so. <laughs> but here's the great irony is, of course, the irony is already sensed when you realize Napoleon declares himself first consul, but here's the real great irony. When Robespierre and the Jacobins were talking about how war was going to dismantle all of the efforts of the National Assembly, Robespierre was right. Because yep. in 1803, the Helvetic Republic that was established under Napoleon, becomes the Swiss Confederation. In 1805, the Cisalpine Republic, which was taken and, you know, from the destroyed Venice and all the Italian provinces and created, uh, became the Kingdom of Italy in 1805. 
The Ligurian Republic, which was originally Genoa, as I mentioned, was annexed into France in 1805. The Batavian Republic, which which was uh, the 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 kingdom created in the or the republic created from the countries in the Low Countries, mm-hmm. uh, that becomes the Kingdom of Holland in 1806. Right. Uh, the Roman Republic was given back to the Pope in 1802, but then Napoleon annexed it again in 1808. <laughs> The Parthopanean Republic, which I had mentioned, the Parthopanean Republic is established from the remnants of the, uh, the Kingdom of Naples, or, yeah, the Kingdom of Naples, becomes the Kingdom of Naples again in 1808. The Kingdom of Spain came under the rule of Joseph Bonaparte, one of his brothers or cousins, right. in 1808. So in the span of 1803 to 1808, all of those... Um, Republics that he had created when he was 27, 28, 29, just a few years earlier, really, it's only seven or so years earlier, they're all dismantled. And they're all kingdoms again. Except, Uh, you know what kind of kingdoms they are? They're Bonaparte kingdom. Uh Aha. All of the brothers of Bonaparte, all the cousins of Bonaparte were established to be the monarchs of these places. So basically, he creates his own Habsburg empire pretty and, much, and that's yeah. more or less where i end it now there's a lot more to the lecture that i didn't watch I, this this is only 43 minutes of an hour and 15 minute long lecture that i managed to get stuff out of so yeah. the second whole portion of this which will be a little shorter but then i don't know you could we could start from here i mean what's interesting is we've chosen the french revolution so in a way if we want we could just start doing the history of europe because it really does <laughs> modern europe's <laughs> history kind of really does begin with this anyway pretty much yeah um, anyway that's it that's all i've got that's my history of the Constitutional Revolution and the early French Revolution of France. Say that. Right. Uh, yeah, that's great. Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's a lot more. I, uh, <laughs> there's a lot more that we didn't talk about. Oh yeah, yeah. I have a few more minor additions. Uh, basically, uh, just some Napoleon stuff, and then I say we take a break and evaluate if we're going to make the constitutional part a part two, or if we want to just uh, keep going. Um, so, uh, let's see, 1799, yeah, I have to say, Napoleon and Coco made a successful coup d'etat. Um, uh, so, essentially, uh, uh, Napoleon calls himself, uh, or sets him up, uh, himself up as uh, first consul of a weird system with three consuls. This system is bullshit. Basically, it's just Napoleon uh, yeah. his boss. Um, in 1804, uh, Napoleon is crowned emperor. Um, and to be crowned emperor, you need the Pope. Um, so, Napoleon has the Pope come over to uh, Paris to put the crown on his head, except that he uh, takes the crown uh, from the hand of the Pope and puts it on his head. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Um, his reasoning being essentially that, well, uh, the most powerful man in, um, in the world uh, should crown one to emperor. And right, clearly right. that is me. Uh, so let's see. So more worrying occurs. Napoleon invades Russia. That doesn't go well. He's managed to Korsika. He comes back, is defeated, uh, and is managed to Helena, St. Helena. Right. Um, That's and right. so much for French Revolution. Because... Oh, um we neglected to talk about this when it was pre-recorded, but now that this is post-recorded, <laughs> tell me about the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Because I, I learned about it in school. It's very interesting. It's a lot like the Bill of Rights, but it's very generalized. Yeah. Um, I'm looking into it right now because I, uh, well, my research is fantastic as always. Um, man and citizen. <sighs> you have, first of all, you have to say it in French first. You have to try your best. Oh, Jesus. They're so weird. I think I can manage this. Le déclaration de droit de l'homme et de citoyenne. 
Yeah, you, you're, you're, whatever it is about the way, I, it might just be European languages are just spoken differently because that sounded way more authentic than anything I would be able to do. I, uh, <laughs> I did have to take French uh, oh, that makes like three years in high school. So Yeah, that makes sense. Déclaration, I don't know because I don't even know where the, I don't know where the emphasis is. Déclaration des droits de Léon et du citoyen. Oh, citoyenne. Yeah, Citoyen, citoyen de 1789. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Now. <laughs> because the French have a very weird way of counting. Um, they do, they do. It's based yeah. on like not 10 or something it's, weird. No, they don't, they don't work with 10s. I no, think they... They work with 3s, right? Th- not quite. I don't quite know how it works, but they... Um, <laughs> I believe they have like just uh, individual numbers for up to 14 or so. Oh, Christ. That's right. They do. That's right. And then uh, from there, uh, yeah, so 14 would be 14. Uh, and 4 would be 4. And then. Yeah, but, but then by so 15, 15, it's like 10 plus 5 is the translation, right? Be, that's almost like Spanish does that. It's even worse. I think it makes like they go with 14. Plus one oh, or something. That's so right. Yes, that's right. They do something very strange like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's and like then, addition based. Yeah, yeah. And then Weird. with a number like eighty eight, you get something like, like uh, four four fourteen and twenty two plus yes. fourteen. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you have to be it's a, a Latin. Speaker. It's Latin. It's a Latin system because if you yeah. think of the way that Latin's counted, you would see the process of math being done in the in the number itself. When you think about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I mean, when we look at, like, Louis the Sixteenth, is it's X-I-V. So that literally, to the mind, should mean 10 plus 5 minus 1. X-I, bird. Yeah, but you, you know, also... Talking s- about Louis fourteen. Oh, 14, yeah, 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 14. But you know what I mean. But like, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, so yeah, it's, it's just weird that it's, like, it's a weird form of mathematics where, unlike ours, which I say the number 20... And you know what that number looks like in your brain, but it takes slightly longer for you to know what that number actually consists of. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, anyway, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Um, last note. We have our articles. Actually, yeah. Um, so it's a pretty important uh, declaration because um, it's kind of considered the uh, declaration upon which uh, the current Declaration of Human Rights as adopted by the UN is based. And I would also like to mention that the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen were created, just so you know, in 1789. Yes. In consultation with Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. Yes. Who, in 1789, was not writing the Bill of Rights because he, well, well, sorry, I should say it this way. He, well, he didn't write the Bill of Rights. In 1789, the other document that was being created at the exact same time as the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen was the Bill of Rights. Exactly. In the and, U.S. Um, so Thomas Jefferson wasn't in the U.S. to see the drafting of the Bill of Rights or the Constitution, by the yeah. way, which is a huge controversy in, in the U.S. that they waited to send him over to France before they drafted the Constitution. Holy because, shit. Because... Besides, I don't know. um, I mean, besides like, I I guess uh, maybe two other founding fathers, potentially, there's very few other founding fathers who were more like 
libertarian, I guess, but different word, of course, but yeah. based on liberty than Tom, Thomas Jefferson. So they all waited until he left, and then they only had to bully, like, you know, a few of the Jeffersonians who remained. Yeah, they right. They just got to pass all this shit on their own. So, yeah, it's funny to think the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, because it was consulted, because they consulted Thomas Jefferson, who was a genius, and they all knew he was, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen might be more of a reflection of Thomas Jefferson's personal idea of a Bill of Rights than the actual U.S. Bill of Rights, which makes sense because, in my opinion, the Declaration of the Bill of Rights is much more of what a nation should be declaring. Like, it has positive rights in it, which whatever you think about positive rights doesn't mean they have to be performed by any sort of state action. It can be an agreement between members of the nation, perfectly fine. But a nation is meant to support itself. Whereas the Declaration of the Bill of Rights in the U.S., all that that is, is things the federal government can't do to the citizenry. In this document, it specifies things that men should do for one another, which I think is very interesting. But anyway, let's actually get into it, Um, because people who are familiar with the Bill of Rights (laughs) will hear the similarities. I know. I just want to clarify one more thing. Yes. Um, uh, just uh, to to bring this back in circles, um, mm-hmm. do you remember who Thomas Jefferson uh, was taking influence from for his idea of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution? I want to say Ben Franklin, but I think you're going to tell me a Dutchman of some kind. The Dutch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, is that literally the case? Uh, like, like well, I mean by well, let me not say literally; it's too general. What I mean is, does Thomas Jefferson ever, in a written word, attest to the fact that he took inspiration from the Dutch Revolution in a uh, literal way? I believe not, <laughs> but um, well, I mean it's, it's okay. Like a lot of yeah. the ideas are similar, it could yeah, still yeah. be the case. It's um, not so much the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. I believe that uh, he takes inspiration from from the Dutch Revolt, oh, but the, the Declaration, Declaration of Independence. Yes, and the Declaration of Independence is a big influence on the Declaration of the Rights of Man of Citizen, obviously, because exactly. the writer of that document was Thomas Jefferson, exactly. and the American Constitution didn't exist yet for the French exactly. to be able to look into it. Yes. So again, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen is, in my opinion, if Thomas Jefferson was the only person who was allowed to write that Bill of Rights, it would look a lot more like what you see from the French Declaration than you do from the actual constitution of the u.s yeah quite likely um so i mean i i have to uh be a bit of a nationalist here so i would like to point out that without the dutch act of uh abjuration yes okay there would not be a declaration of the rights of man and citizen or there wouldn't have been a precedent for it at least (laughs) but because i think the french one way or another (laughs) the the france was so bad one way or another something was going to happen yeah, that's fair. <laughs> All right, let's do the articles and then right. we'll, we'll, we'll get out of here. Yeah. Article, article one, and this is an English translation, obviously, and I don't know of which course. English translation, but this is the Wikipedia English translation. Yes. So bear with us here if you have a book with a different translation. <laughs> uh, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social distinctions can be founded only on the common good. That's another interesting term that comes up there. Common good, I think, comes yeah. from Rousseau. Although I wonder if Rousseau comes before or after. Rousseau comes before. So you know what? They're using Rousseau's definition of common good there, which I think is quite interesting because that's the same one that Locke uses, which is the same one that Jefferson uses. Holy so, shit. Yeah, there you go. There we go. <laughs> uh, article two, the goal of any political association. Do you see here, by the way, that unlike the Bill of Rights, the, the declaration on the rights of man and citizen also gives descriptions as to what it believes political associations should be. The Bill of yeah. Rights is just like, well, you know, 
if there is a government, here's how it should act. This one says, not only is there a government, here's how it should look. And I really like that about it. Um, anyway, Article 2. The goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. That's Lockean mm-hmm. as well. You could yeah. tell Thomas Jefferson has his, his hand in this because... You know, Locke believes in armed revolution in a case where the sovereign doesn't satisfy the needs of the people anymore. Yeah. So that's, that's put that right there. Uh, Article three, the principle of any sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. No body, no individual may exercise any authority which does not proceed directly from the nation. Again, Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen kind of gives Napoleon later this uh, uh, aura of being the man who inhabits the will of the nation. Yep. Just like it says in here, like it says, look at what it says. The principle of sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. No body, no individual may exercise any authority which does not proceed directly from the nation. So Napoleon's authority was said to have proceeded directly from the nation. So that's how you kind of get that conflation there. Uh, Article four, liberty consists of doing anything which does not harm others. Thus, the exercise of the natural rights of each man has only the borders which assure other members of the society the fruition of these same rights. These borders can be determined only by the law. So what it's what here is, and again, actually, I, I believe Bastiat, uh, the libertarian thinker Bastiat, oh. is responding in part to this period of time as well and the presuppositions made by documents like this. So that right. could, someone could look into that as well. Um, that's an interesting one because it, it first of all it says liberty consists of doing any of not of doing anything which does not harm others. I like that definition. Yeah. Being free is everything but when you harm other people. I like that definition. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting here is it says these borders can only be determined by the law, which I think is quite interesting. That may be unlike Locke, who believes that um, those rights of man come from God and are, are, are determined by God. The, the French National Assembly here asserts, not necessarily by God, but they're defined by law. I think that's interesting because it kind of begins this turn away from God and into self-reliance. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So when people always make this idea that the state is a religion, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think it's kind of an edgy way of, of putting the argument. <laughs> but like, there is a literal switch from dependence on God for the definition of human rights to dependence on the law for the definition of human rights, which you see a lot when we argue with people and they go, get out of this country if you don't like it. It's oh, like, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. My rights precede my agreement to be here in this country. Yeah, they pers- exactly. They, they come before that. But yeah, anyway, so you see kind of a difference in approach coming here. Article five, uh, the law has the right to forbid only actions harmful to society. Anything which is not forbidden by the law cannot be impeded and no one can be constrained to do what it does not order. That's another interest. Oh, yeah. Now, here's a, a definition of law for you. Article six, the law is the expression of the general will, which is also Rousseau. All, all the citizens have the right to, of contributing personally or through their representatives to its formation. It must be the same for all, either that it protects or that it punishes. All the citizens being equal in its eyes are equally admissible to all public dignities, places, and employments according to their capacity and without distinction other than that of the virtues and their talents. Uh, interesting one there. Um, so basically it says the law is the same for everybody. The law is determined by the general will of people. Nobody is ahead in the eyes of the law. Yes. So, 
Another reminiscent of our yeah. Bill of Rights. Article 7. No man can be accused, arrested, nor detained, but, by the, but in cases determined by the law and according to the forms which it has prescribed, those who solicit, dispatch, carry out, or cause to be carried out arbitrary orders must be punished, but any citizen called or seized under the terms of the law must obey at once. He renders himself culpable by resistance. So again, that it, re- it logically proceeds from the idea that you construct rights based on the law. Yeah. Obviously, so this is yeah, all still pretty, pretty well reasonable if you accept the first part of it. Yeah, exactly. So, Article eight. I'm a, just a quick interjection here. Is so mm-hmm. one thing that uh, stands out to me is um, how, from a, I, I guess, a modern perspective or from a current day perspective, it's really uh, it almost writes loopholes for itself. So you know, the law. It was meant to. It was meant to. I think right. it was meant to. Remember that Jefferson, I mean, like Jefferson kind of writes like this in the Declaration of Independence as well. Yeah. There's a whole lot of, he makes a lot of assumptions based on, anyway, I, I think you have to leave loopholes, yeah, right? No, I think by, you have What I mean to. is, um, uh, like the, it's always like the law should establish such and such, or according to the law, such and such. Well, I mean, who makes laws? So yes, just like yeah, precisely. Well, well, listen. Here's the law. Well, this, but th- but they answer that question in a way. They say, well, what is who's the law? Well, the law is the general will. It's not yeah. a who. It's it's a what. Yeah, but exactly. it's still, of course, it 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 leads to a problem of well, how do you guarantee that that will is being accurately expressed? Right, exactly. like that becomes the issue. But I don't know. I guess they didn't think of it that way, or or how do you write? Because that would be, if I was creating a government, that's how I would have to do it. Yeah. You have to consider like, the, all of the contingencies from the outside. Well, I mean, I think there's two things at play here. Uh, for one, these ideas are already revolutionary. Extremely. I mean, you, what's interesting is a lot of these ideas are ahead of their time today. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the idea that there is such a thing as the general will that can establish a law and not just the divine right of a king. That's right. It's in direct um, opposition. And I, yes. R- R- Rousseau writes that in, I forget what year, but he writes it not long before. Uh, so this is a brand new conception entirely. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, here we go. Seventeen In the 1740s, he writes the social contract. Oh, so this wow. is only yeah. 30 is like years 50, later. Yeah, 30 yeah. to 50 years later 50 when this years starts. 50 years later? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the second part that goes into it is that uh, I think from uh, the history that we've covered, um, we can see that the French aren't very good at contingencies. Mm-hmm. Like it's they true. don't, <laughs> it's not their strong point. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is true. It's, uh, it does leave a lot of room open for contingencies though. The yeah. flowery language is what it is. It's the very flowery language. Whereas yeah, our constitution, exactly. which we know in the US, our bill of rights has been given loopholes all the time for different shit. And in fact, and yeah. sometimes it's just completely disregarded, but like we have, we literally have a, 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 a bill. We literally have our, our second right is the right to bear arms. And yeah. there's still argument over that. And meanwhile, yeah. the whole right is a sentence. Yeah. I, I'll actually read it because it's, it's, so, it's so short. Uh, the second uh, amendment. So short and so, so obvious. A well-regulated militia being, the, being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms. Ooh, whoa. Cornell.com removed the... Whoa. This is going to be interesting only to Americans. Uh, Cornell.com, which when you search the Second Amendment, yeah, the first thing you see is Cornell, descript- Cornell Law's description of, the, of the, the Second Amendment. Right. Now, the Second Amendment reads as such. 
A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay. So as far as I understood it, this may be the case. Anyway, Cornell Law, mm, it's very suspicious. They omitted the second part of, it's longer than that. What? It's longer than that. It's longer than that. Let me, it's so hard to find the actual, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, never mind. I will. I will. I will clarify this with you later. Okay. Uh, a- after the podcast, because it's too hard to explain. But yeah. Cornell.com is, does some funny stuff. Okay. Uh, um, anyway, next. Let's get back to yeah. Yes. Uh, next. Article eight. The yes. law should only pen- Whoa. The law should establish only penalties that are strictly and evidently necessary, and no one can be punished but under a law established and promulgated before the offense and legally applied. So that's a good solid. I mean, that's pretty much everywhere. No double jeopardy, no excessive punishments, and no um, charging people after the fact. Yes. Uh, Nine, uh, any man presumed innocent until he is declared culpable if it is judged indispensable to arrest him. Any rigor which would not be necessary for the securing of his person must be severely reprimanded by the law. So do not in any case do anything more than necessary in apprehending criminals, which I think is an interesting one. Article 10, no one may be disturbed for his opinions, even religious ones, provided that their manifestation does not trouble the public order established by the law. I do like, because again, you can hear the psychology of the writers, even religious ones Mm -hmm. i think is very interesting because you must remember religious opinion at this time was coming from one of two places the decentralized protestants which i mean you must think of it this way the decentralized protestants religious opinions are no more than like average public opinions yeah they don't have a hierarchical system yeah the catholic church's opinion and the king's opinion as a member of 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 the catholic church um that is much more detestable to these people. Yeah. Much more detestable. So it is interesting. You can kind of hear, yeah, even the Catholics ones. <laughs> it kind of yeah. is, let's say, even religious ones really just means even the Catholics. Yep. You don't ever see them persecuting Calvinists or Lutherans. They don't ever persecute them. It's only the Catholics because of the hierarchical aspect of it. Exactly. But anyway, so there's that. So Article 11, the free communication of thoughts and of opinions is one of the most precious rights of man. Any citizen thus may speak, write, print freely, except to respond to the abuse of this liberty in cases determined by the law. Article 12, the guarantee of the rights of man and of the citizen necessitates a public force. This force is thus instituted for the advantage of all and not for a particular utility of those whom it is entrusted. I think that establishes either a police force or a military or both. I'm not sure. Yeah, it might establish a gendarmerie, like a combination of the two. Um, Article 13, for the maintenance of the public force and for the expeditures uh, expenditures of administration a common contribution is indispensable it must be equally distributed to all citizens according to their ability to pay so that establishes a tax and it establishes a progressive tax exactly actually very interesting which you see a lot in europe actually most commonly in europe Um, Article 14, each citizen has the right to ascertain by himself or through his representatives the need for a public tax to consent to it freely, to know the uses to which it is put, and of determining the proportion, basis, collection, and duration of those taxes. I can smell the influence of Jacques Necker in this. It's kind of true. It it is fascinating also to think that they they did that. And in our Bill of Rights, we don't have that. We don't have in our Bill of Rights in the United States, the right for each citizen to ascertain the need for a public tax. That is not the citizen's responsibility in 
the U.S. Constitution, that is the responsibility of the legislature, which is actually, sorry, it's the responsibility of the representatives, uh, yeah. which I guess, first of all, it's not listed in the Bill of Rights. It's listed in the other parts of the Constitution, like the other articles of the Constitution. The Bill of Rights is just one article of the Constitution, um, whereas this is a whole document with its own articles. Uh, anyway, that is described like the need for public tax through the justification of representatives is in the Constitution, not in the Bill of Rights. But it's interesting. It's just different. It's not considered a right, per se. Uh, Article 15, the society has the right of requesting an account from the public agent of its administration. There's your Jock Necker. That's it right there. Yes. Yeah, that's it right there. Uh, Article 16, any society in which the guarantee of rights is not assured nor the separation of powers determined has no constitution. I like that one. It, uh, Basically, because this is not a constitution, this is a declaration of Bill of Rights, Yeah, basically. This is not a constitution. It does basically anticipate a constitution. In pretty this. much. Yeah. It pretty much says, look, we need a constitution to secure these things, and if we don't have it, we don't have a constitution, and we don't have a society. Yeah, it's um, a very interesting setup in that way. Yeah, you uh, could tell. I mean, the king must have seen this document and been like, oh, that's your plan the whole time, right? He yeah, must have, pretty much. The whole time. And then the last article, Article 16 or 17, rather, Article 17 says, property being an invaluable and sacred right. It's interesting they use the word sacred. Yeah. An invaluable and sacred right. That has to, I'll get back to that. Anyway, <laughs> property being an invaluable and sacred right, no one can be deprived of private usage if it is not when the public necessity legally noted evidently requires it and under the condition of a just and proper indemnity. So this pretty much establishes the right to civil asset forfeiture and things like that, or uh, public works projects requiring the purchase of private property. But what I think is so fascinating here is, again, Thomas Jefferson is largely responsible for the consultation of writing this document. Sacred right is a Lockean idea, because of course Locke says our rights come from God and not from the state. So it is interesting to see property is a sacred right, not just a legal right. And they, they write that in there. And so I wonder if you were to talk to these people who are organizing this, what did they think the difference between private property as a right and um, men are born of free and equal rights? You know, yeah. like, are they born of the law? Are they born of God? How do they, how do we figure this out? I don't know. But anyway, there's all of your articles of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. It, yeah. Uh, fascinating, uh, the sacred part, because it's, it's mentioned nowhere else. Nowhere and else. Especially considering the... Uh, uh, the way they viewed Catholics back then. Yeah. Um, something being sacred is... Uh, yeah, sacred, specifically the word sacred, yes. absolutely, is a Catholic word in a way. Yeah. I mean, sacri means sacrifice, which, I mean, you know, we have our Eucharist is a sacred sacrament because it, it yeah. involves a sacrifice. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think of that, that part specifically too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. There's your... That's it, man. Right. That's it, man. Fucking hell, that was one hell of a recording session. <laughs> yeah, man. How long was that? Three hours? Uh, three and a half, about. Nice. Okay, yeah. man. Right. Well, Bert, thank you very much for coming. Wait, on. wait, wait. Hold on. You oh. got to close this recording out and edit this part, and then we'll oh. do another one. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Fuck.